VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, December the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I think Brian Medor had the right word there regarding the weather in the metro region. It's socked in. Been socked in all week, and uh, as far as the long-range forecast menu goes, the weather conditions will remain eerily similar to today. But as I'm reminded... You don't have to shovel it. Anywho, let's go. A little bit of World Cup withdrawal. Just one day without. I guess myself and my son Jack have been really binging the soccer and really enjoying it. But here come the quarters beginning tomorrow. I think a lot of eyes will be on the England-France game Saturday afternoon. Of course, the predominance of English people here in the province will uh, undoubtedly see a lot of English fans kicking around. Anyway, today in 1987, a guy who was well-renowned for his stick work as a goaltender, stick handling, the ability to shoot the puck, and yes, Ron Hexall would come after with a two-hand slash like he was trying to fall a Christmas tree. But today in 87, he became the first NHL goalie to actually score a goal. I remember the highlight quite clearly. And that boy was really talented with the stick, but also vicious with it. And down at the Mary Brown Center, uh, the Growlers win. They had a comeback victory against the Iowa Heartlanders. Uh, 4-3 win in overtime. The goal scored in OT, Pavel Gogolev. Gogolev. Love it. All right, and so there's two more games in the three-game set, Friday and Saturday night, once again downtown. And Saturday night's game is a Buddy the Puffin tribute game, so there should be some fans in the stands and some potential tears in the eyes. What a loss. What a loss that was. All right. I've never really known what to make of the private sector getting involved in space travel. It's always felt like just egomania run amok to me. Whether we're able to achieve... Anything scientifically, and, you know, all the thought about colonizing different planets all seems a bit far-fetched and a bit out there to me. But today, in 2010, SpaceX became the first private company to successfully launch, orbit, and recover a spacecraft. That was after their second launch of the SpaceX Falcon 9 back in 2010. And lots to talk about what's going on over in the uh, the breadbasket of Europe, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So 31 years ago today, interestingly, 1991, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine signed an agreement that effectively dissolved the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. They're called the Belaziva Accords, something like that. So originally back in 1922, there was an accord signed by three of the four republics that created the USSR, but for all intents and purposes, it was dissolved today in 1991. And if you want to talk about that, what you see over in that, the atrocities being committed in Ukraine, and or the fact that yesterday, or no, a couple of days ago, the fourth charter carrying Ukrainian refugees to the province arrived. Some 700 have arrived via government charter, and there's, I think, about 1,500 Ukrainians have made their way here. Lots of conversation to have about it. And all the world will travel. You know, just like there was so much controversy uh, surrounding the COVID alert app, and people thought they were being tracked, even though there was no GPS associated with it. It was a Bluetooth-based application. Same controversy was associated with the Arrive Can app. Now, people were asking questions about just how much it costs to create the app. If memory serves me, it was about $54 million. That sounds extraordinary. But some of the comparisons that were done didn't include all the back-end work that had to be done before they put it to an application available to download on your phone. Anyway, people didn't like it. 
you know, there was mass pandemonium in the airports when the travel travelers started to rebound and get back up in the air. I think a large part, most of that has been solved. Most of it was about preparation, not only for the airlines, but for border service agents, and there was a real staff shortages, and consequently, the lineups were around the block. Now, back in October, the Arrive Can app became optional, and no longer re- were you required to report your vaccination status. For some, they find it to be a quite effective and easy tool to navigate as opposed to bum a pen in the fuselage of your, your airliner and then fill out the paper declaration. Some people will choose to do that. But now that they've got some numbers in, about how many people are actually using ArriveCan now that it is optional? About one-fifth. Here are some numbers to consider. There's been a roughly 2.4 million arrivals at these airports since October, and those airports would be Montreal's Trudeau, Toronto Pearson, and Vancouver's International. So in the 2.4 million arrivals, just over 320,000 travelers use the ArriveCan app. That comes out to about 13%. So if people didn't like it, they're not going to all of a sudden latch onto it now that it's optional. But if you hear from people who are not part of the government, not part of Health Canada, from the Canadian Airports Council, a lady named Monette Pasher, she says she's pleased that people are continuing to use the app. And they think it's been terrible messaging regarding how not only effective it could be, but to uh, shave some time off your stay in the line. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but they say on the average you can save about 40 seconds and, of course, not have to deal with the paperwork and try to bum a pen and all that type of stuff. And you don't have to talk about your vaccination status. But in the 2.4 million travelers, if everybody saved 40 seconds, that adds up after time. You know, you won't necessarily feel it as an individual with your own personal stopwatch, but... 40 seconds per 2.4 million in just three of the big airports in the country, but one-fifth of the travelers are continuing to use the app. I've used it, didn't have any problem with it at all, but that doesn't mean that people have not had issues with it. So anyway, I think that was an interesting one. We know we had a pretty good tourism season this year. The numbers of travelers coming through St. John's International were up. They were about pre-pandemic level. And then, of course, the Marine Atlantic numbers were way up. I think the tourism sector feels, and I think the bottom line reflects it was a pretty solid season, but there's work to do. So yesterday there was an announcement regarding a blueprint for recovery. They're titling it Vision 2026, trying to help the sector transition, transform, and thrive. Okay. The tourism sector is absolutely important. They have big optimistic goals ahead of them. They're hoping to build the industry to be $1 billion per year, support 20,000 jobs. On top of that, There's nothing quite like the injection of -of out-of-province money to make the world go round. And, you know, domestic travelers, whether it be the staycationer, they spend far less than someone coming from out-of-province, a domestic traveler, and certainly international travelers. They bring a big wallop of money to the province. So they're working towards making this rebound year the norm and to build upon. A billion dollars sounds like a lot, but absolutely achievable. We've got a lot to offer here. Some of the challenges, of course, we've just talked about Arrive Can app and whatnot. We have a dearth of flights. When I look to travel, like most of you, it's not only price point, which is extraordinary trying to get in and out of here, but it's the limit of flights, whether it be direct or otherwise, and how long and how milk run a route you might have to take to get here. So that's a problem. Then, of course, this past summer, there was obviously a problem with the lack of rental cars. Now, Toro came to town. And that was a, a rideshare application where you could basically put your car in the rental market and someone would find you on the website. I think that was indeed helpful. Apparently, there's some other rental car uh, ride application things that are in the works. 
But the rental car issue was a global phenomenon. It was. When no one was traveling, the rental car fleet sold off their vehicles. Then, of course, you had all the issues with like uh, semiconductors and whatnot to get more cars built, sold in rental fleets and or just on the lot up at Avalon Ford or Hickman Motors or wherever the case may be. But the tourism industry, if you are working therein and you want to talk about it, we can do it. Now, the province last year put some $20 million into the Come Home Year effort. Tourism operators say that was indeed helpful, including folks at the St. John's International Airport Authority. But we can all only hope that the tourism sector continues to grow. There's examples out there where there's been massive growth. Now, it's not always direct comparison. Sometimes there's a little bit of apple, maybe compared with an orange. But, for instance, in Iceland, we've got a lot to offer. Certainly everything that Iceland would have, and all the UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and just the rugged beauty, and yes, the hospitality, and yes, the culinary scene, and the arts. This is a province that people are going to want to visit. They had explosion in numbers that of people visiting and traveling to Iceland. We should be able to replicate some of that because the, the pent-up demand to travel, even though there's a price point concern, is obviously very, very real. And talking about price point, not unexpectedly, the Bank of Canada did indeed raise its benchmark interest rate by 50 basis points, and for us lay folks, a half a point. That's the seventh time this year it's happened. It now stands at 4.2%. So while everything else, and I think the Proper phrase for this is the perfect storm. The inflationary rates, which of course benchmark interest rate hikes, are intended to try to calm inflationary pressures. It takes about a year, 18 months to see any of those types of results. So say economists who understand the issue much better than I do. So whether it be the price of groceries, servicing your debt, Canadians have record high levels of consumer debt. You know, it won't impact your credit card, but everything else that you've borrowed, it will absolutely impact. Especially, you know, whether it be your line of credit and your mortgage. The examples that we've seen going from 0.25% to 4.25, and no one gets to borrow at 4.25%. So most of the banks out there, it's in and around 6.25% for a mortgage rate, especially if if you have a variable mortgage. Here's real-life impact. Initially, this one particular family, they had a rate of 1.2%. Their mortgage payment uh, came out to $1,700 a month. But even before Wednesday's announcement, the mortgage rate had skyrocketed to 5.5%. Monthly payments became $2,700. So for folks sitting on massive big mortgages and other levels of consumer debt, this one is going to hit again. Now, the Bank of Canada's language yesterday was a little bit more neutral. So as opposed to what we heard the last time, like back in June, was it June there was a full point hike, is that there was no end in sight. That's not really how it felt or sounded yesterday from the Bank of Canada leadership. Maybe, just maybe, there's going to be a sit-back-and-wait approach taken, but we all know what that Bank of Canada rate hike means to our debt servicing issues. And on that front, the most important, the most expensive purchase most of us will ever make in this life is when you buy a home. There's all sorts of stuff attached with that. You know, there's not a whole lot of glory in home ownership. It does feel good to have someone to call your own. Then there's the mortgage stress test, mortgage stress test that I think we should be discussing. But also in this province, this story is really quite something. This is brought forward by Ariana Kelland. This is about the fact that there's only two provinces in the country that have a licensing regime, an oversight board regarding home inspectors. That's in Alberta and British Columbia. We don't hear. So all the titles that you hear flicked around about someone presenting themselves as a proper professional home inspector, what's some of the titles that I saw this one fellow using? And he's been in the business 50 years, and apparently he's top-notch. So 
They say, you know, you can talk about being a professional property inspector, a certified home and property inspector, and the quote from this gentleman says, they're all fictitious because they don't mean anything if there's no licensing. This is important stuff. So, you know, when you get a home inspection, it's to offer some comfort, maybe to be able to forecast how much it will cost to do said repairs or renovations, you know, to identify problems, a cracked foundation or a particular leak or a structural matter. So it's not only whether or not you can afford to do the repairs, you might be able to avoid buying a lemon in the first place. So when people go to get an inspection, and it comes back clean and clear enough that you don't have any additional worries, you go ahead, you go back to your mortgage broker or your bank and your lawyer, and you close the deal. Then, lo and behold, down the road, because of potentially shoddy inspection work, you find that you've got tens of thousands of dollars of repairs that have to be done, structural concerns. So it's about time we figure that stuff out because you cannot just cross your fingers and hope that whatever inspector you pick out of the yellow pages or find online absolutely has the chops and the training and the understanding to do a comprehensive evaluation of the home. You know, there's one part of the story that says you'll get this multi-page report that identifies things that may indeed be uh, irrelevant, but when you get a hefty document, you think, oh, well, this person knows what they're doing. Absolutely, just feel the weight of this document. That's an excellent home inspection. But be very, very careful and get some referrals. If you've had a concern with one home inspector or company or another, then don't use them. If you get some reputable company that has the track record, has the referrals that paint them in a very kind light and a professional light, then maybe that's the folks to use. Now, some people think a home inspection is a complete waste of time. When we bought our home, we got one done because we wanted to know what we were getting ourselves into. And we did indeed get a referral, and it came out to be someone that I actually personally knew. So I was quite comfortable with that. But if it requires a licensing board and standards, there are national standards, but if they're not enforced, then they're just there on paper. And whether or not one inspector has the professionalism and the dedication to his or her customers, then you could get yourself in a world of hurt. Unbelievable. Okay. The, there's getting a lot of traction on social media, which doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot, but this issue is big. We know about the recruitment and retention issue regarding family doctors in particular. But when people are doing cost comparisons and the implications of how much we're paying to a company called PhoneMed to use 811 versus an in-person or virtual care appointment with a doctor located here, there are some legitimate concerns. And I'm sure it's the bane of many uh, family doctors' existence. So there's been some $31 million set aside between 2022 and 2027 to deal with what is an expected call volume of 72,000 calls per year. That money works out to $82 per call in the first year, rising to 92 in the final year. After 72,000 calls, we do get a bit of a rate drop from 57.50 and 66, uh, 66.10 per call. For members of the NLMA, when they have an in-person appointment or a virtual appointment, pardon me, $37 for a routine in-person appointment, $47 for a virtual appointment, and there's, of course, a cap, which we don't really necessarily understand why, a cap of 40 virtual appointments per day. This does indeed present an on-level playing field. Now, Minister Osborne presents a distinction without a real difference, saying that 811 is 27, or 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they do indeed have professional staff on hand. Some 20 staff members apparently are working for 811. Where it becomes even more confusing and I think concerning, of course the doctors would have one stance, and for the rest of us not working in the field, 
we'll probably have to take a little bit of a different tact. But think about it. There was a story earlier in the week where a lady with a sick three-year-old was told by 811, you need to see a doctor within 24 hours. Easier said than done for many of you. So, how many times has someone on the other end of 811 told you that you have to see a doctor within 24 hours or referred you to follow up with a doctor? And so consequently, what happens is we pay the fee to phone med and then we pay the MCP billing because you were referred to a doctor. So you did it twice. There's something wrong. Look, 811 is an important service, but it's also important to get it right. So what it means for retaining doctors, absolutely critically important. But what it means simply for overall cost, I paid PhoneMed, well, in essence, we paid PhoneMed, 82 bucks. And then if I had a chance to have an in-person appointment with the doctor, then I paid another $37. You know what I mean by we or we. So there's something to be said for that. The doctors are not wrong in their concerns voiced here. Now, we can extend that out to the collaboration of these collaborative care clinics and welcoming in nurse practitioners, all the other side stories that have been part of this 811 chat. But if you want to bring it forward with any level of concern, we can do it. And, of course, you've heard uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Officer of Health, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, in various media outlets in the last day or so, talking about the surge of seasonal influenza, in particular with children. So there's been a big spike in children being presented at the uh, emergency room at the Janeway, going from 50-odd now to well in excess of 150-odd. So it's a thing. So whether it be as a result of, you know, people have not been exposed over the couple of years, and now we're going to see a rash of, we were told that this was very likely coming. But Dr. Fitzgerald is very clearly pointing to what she thinks is the ultimate defense is for more people to get their seasonal flu vaccine. A vaccine with, we're very familiar. It's not like the conversation regarding the COVID vaccine. But apparently there's only about a 24% uh, uptake so far this flu year, and it's not over. And the uptake for children, and it's up to you what you do with your own child. I'm not telling you what to do. These are comments coming from Dr. Fitzgerald. Is that it's a very low uptake for the younger sect. So we'll put that out there because obviously she feels it to be quite important. Uh, how are we doing on the telephone, David? I really do want to get into the Auditor General's report regarding corrections. And this is not a conversation where someone's going to immediately say, look, they did the crime, they do it at the time. Yes, absolutely. But in the air of public safety, we've got to understand what goes on in the world of rehabilitation. And Denise Hanrahan is really quite concerned. We'll get into a little further, another segment of the show, because I do want to get to the break half on time. But whether it be conditions at HMP, the numbers of fights are going up, COs out sick, and consequently inmates are locked down more frequently and for longer, what it means when they get released and the monitoring of them, whether it be curfew checks and or knowing what they're doing and who they're doing it with. There's a lot of pitfalls and shortcomings that have been identified by the Auditor General, and this is not about putting them up in the Ritz-Carlton. This is about public safety. That's the summary thought for me. I know people have varied thoughts on how inmates are treated, in particular at Her Majesty's Penitentiary, but in other facilities here in the province. But if we're not doing much to ensure that there's a hopeful, seamless reintegration into society and we're not checking in on them as per court orders and what goes on inside the walls while they're inside the penitentiary, then this should be a concern for everyone. The CEOs, the inmates, and yes, me and you at large in our communities and in our, in our neighborhoods. So we'll tackle that as well. And as we'd like to do, we try to get to the break with a positive note. I want to say big thanks. To Bob Pennell and the folks at R&M Foods, they operate four Greco locations in the metro region. 
This Sunday, December the 11th, they'll be donating 100% of the proceeds made at their locations in CBS, Paradise, Topsa Road, and Ghouls. So thank you very much to Mr. Panel. That's generous. If you're thinking about a pie on Sunday, maybe consider Greco if you have one in your area. CBS, Paradise, Topsa Road, and Ghouls. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's come back and have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Not bad. How about you? Not too bad. Just wanted to <clears throat> touch base on those comments you brought up that uh, uh, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald made yesterday or today. I'm not sure which which it was about uh, why everyone is getting so sick. Um, yeah, and it's just uh, this whole theory of immunity debt, whereas if you don't get sick, uh, you won't be strong to fight off bugs uh, sort of, uh, you know, theory that really doesn't hold any water. So um, just wanted to call in and talk about that briefly. I think there's a variety of reasons, if we're being honest. Like, for instance, when some people use the word lockdown as if, you know, it was like other countries where you weren't allowed outside, when that wasn't true. So even in the recent past, last year, for instance, when people are including that into the lockdown world, Kids were going to school, they were playing with each other, they're playing minor sports, they're going to dance yeah. class, so it's not like there was no exposure to germs. So let's factor that in uh, reason- reasonably. And also when it comes to seasonal influenza, we develop our vaccine and we prepare for bugs that come from the south. So yeah. when people aren't traveling, obviously those bugs aren't making it with the frequency they would have when people were flying like they used to pre-pandemic. So I think there's a bunch of reasons as to why it is. And there is going to be some impact on immune systems when you haven't been exposed. But again, people will cherry pick one as opposed to include all the variables, which gave you a bit more of a well-rounded understanding of what might be happening. Well, see, it's it's kind of, you know, it's, this is the blanket sort of sentiment now we're hearing from a lot of uh, leadership. You know, it's sort of used to justify not having any measures in place, right? So uh, one of the contradictory things that's going on right now is a lot of people are jumping on board with this whole idea that you need to be sick, you know, to be strong to fight off other bugs. Uh, and it's because, you know, kids were wearing masks for two years. However, those are the same people who say masks don't work. So which one is it? Do the masks work or don't they? Because it's kind of confusing if you're using, you know, both the the outcomes to, you know, further your, your narrative, right? So um, masks do work, clearly, because kids weren't this sick for the, you know, the past uh, almost uh, – two years. So um, the problem with the idea that you need to get sick, the immune system is not like a muscle. So the immune system is like, you know, you're watching Star Wars, it's like force field, you know, and if the bad guys are shooting their lasers at it too much, then it gets weaker. And then it leaves you more vulnerable to, you know, bombs or whatever. So, uh, you know, if you're constantly bombarded with viruses, your immune system actually gets much weaker and it ages prematurely and uh, you're actually more susceptible to further infection, right? So uh, the, the, the things that aren't being brought up, especially by leadership, is, you know, the fact that uh, a lot of our population has been infected with COVID-19 over the past, you know, eight months, 10 months, whatever. And the clear, you know, not theory, it's just fact, it's through studies, is, uh, is showing that infection with COVID-19 reduces your T-cell count, which reduces your ability to fight off viruses. So that's not being brought up conveniently by most of the leadership in Canada, which is fine, um, you know, because no one's going to say, hey, we made a mistake. Um, but like a couple of days ago in Ontario, a little kid, you know, died on the floor of an ER. 
And that never happens in Canada. Like that's that's like things you see like in a war torn country or something, you know. And uh, you know, kids' hospitals are packed all over the country. So why are we not using a proven tool? Because you know, if you're if you're saying, oh yeah, two years of wearing a mask is the reason why you know these kids didn't get you know exposed to the virus, then why are we not using that tool? Now? Is the question. That's that's what I have an issue with. We have tools in the in the box, and we're just leaving them there. It, it so. does limit the effectiveness of their concern or messaging on the masks. For me, I think I've been pretty consistent throughout by saying it's not just one public health measure that has been the be-all and end-all or the silver bullet or the ultimate protection. For sure. It seems like it's been a combination of all. Now, yeah. I get absolutely bombarded when I say things like this. When the mask mandates were in place, look, I wasn't a big fan of the mask, but of course I didn't have to wear it for very long. I simply wore it to the grocery store or stuff like that. But people think this is nuts, but I'm going to say it anyway. When those things were in place and the encouragement of physical distancing and, you know, even walking with the arrows in the grocery store and washing your hands and all of these things, the mindset became very much different. And so when the mindset changes because requirements are dropped very quickly from where I sit and the people I know and the things that I see is people went from being a little bit more mindful to throw their arms in the air and say, it's over. And, you know, so the combination just sort of waned. The... Physical distancing, the mask and the washing your hands and covering your coughs and sneezes and, and vaccination rates, they all curbed when mandates went away. So for me, it's a combination of all public health measures. It wasn't just one thing. And yes, it did have a bit of a mindset uh, inclusion with how people were willing and wanting to socialize or travel or anything else. So, you know, it's never been one thing for me. No, and I mean, it's, you know, <clears throat> I, it, and it is, it's kind of, you know, dis- discouraging. I mean, it's disappointing that we learned all these things that we can use, I mean, that that could just become part of daily life. I'm not saying masking, but like you said, the things at the grocery store and stuff. So, you you know, wiping down, uh, you know, the self-checkouts or the handles of the the carts and things like that. As soon as we heard Omicron is mild, they all abandoned every single one of those things. So COVID aside, you know, the flu, RSV, all the rest of the bugs, like uh, a couple days ago in PEI, there was a kid diagnosed with seven viruses in their body at once, right? So there's more than COVID going around. And, uh, you know, this is becoming quite frequent. And what we're seeing in Britain and in BC is kids are getting severely ill with strep A and things like this that they don't usually get in high numbers. But we're like, these kids are getting bombarded by every single virus that's out there. You talk to anyone and what they're saying is, me and my kids have been sick since September. Now let's look at the correlation. If school started in September and everybody's sicker than they normally are, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a, a regular thing for people to be sick for months and months, like chronically ill. And and here's a newsflash. There are people who live their lives fairly healthy. Being sick all the time isn't the norm, right? So uh, the, the fact that we're, you know, we're accepting this world of, oh, yeah, no, it's fine if you're, oh, yeah, everybody gets sick five times, uh, you know, in three months. That's not normal, Patty. And, you know, we're abandoning all these strategies that we could just integrate into our, our everyday, you know, life. 
and it's it's because of the messaging. So people are saying, you know, 70% of Canadians would support a mask mandate, but 70% aren't wearing them. It's because it has to come from the top down. It has to come from the people who go, listen, you really got to wear it. We're not we're not asking you got to, right? There's there's not going to be any more political will on that front. You just can't foresee it, yeah. given how so many people reacted to it. But what's also been a little bit lost in messaging for me is some other things that aren't going to be, again, a cure or be a, a defense that means you'll never get anything, but a bit more attention to things like the vitamins that we consume and activities yep. that we undertake and those types of things. That should have always been part of it for me because, again, it's not going to prevent you from getting something, but it can certainly help. And so, oh, you know, I, again, it's just yep. been a combination of factors. We've had so many people either, whether they be from your viewpoint or the counter viewpoint of yours, and it's just been latching on to one thing when there has been a dozen things that have been helpful and the inclusion of all you know for some it's been a very minor inconvenience for instance on the masking i will never understand just how politically torturous that conversation is but of course i didn't wear it very much i only wore it when i had to and that was limited opportunities per day 10 15 minutes you know i did it and i just moved on yeah but it's become political it's not about policy or public health anymore it's really about politics which i think is which it devolves to that i'm just about everything i'll give you the last word keith go ahead yeah, and, and and it's that's right, Patty. It has become about politics, and you know I agree with you. It's not one. It's not a one-pronged attack, right? And so vitamins and health and things like that. That that's something that we've been trying to promote. You know, as a as a societal sort of uh, you know mitigation. We, we want people to be healthy. You know, in Canada, we don't want people to be you know uh, sick and not have vitamins and all those things. It's just that right now we're in you know for lack of better words war war time, right? So <clears throat> it, when when the shots are fired. It's too late to say, you know, you know, we got it. We got to really work on our diplomacy here, right? We do. We definitely do. And that should be. This is the. This is the other problem. There should be like a Sesame Street, you know, a, a daily show about, hey, how do we feel better? How do we get better? How do we, you know, ward off all these different viruses that are out there to get us? And since COVID struck, we've had basically nothing. I mean, it's it's all about the message, right? So if we start with masking, if if you go to this grocery store and you see that number of people go from, you know, three out of 10 to nine out of 10, right away, you're getting that subliminal messaging that, hey, there's something up. And I should really take a little more caution, right? But like you said, it's political now. So, uh, you know, the people who want to get reelected or I don't know what the motivations are in our province because the the government just, you know, rolled over. So they got like three three years left anyhow. So uh, to protect the people right now, I don't see why it's political. Uh, And if if people did make a mistake in policy, just admit it. Just do it. We, we all make mistakes, right? But if, if we allow kids to die on the floor or if we allow the pediatric hospitals to be, this is only December. We still got three, four months of, uh, you know, hard winter to go through. I, I can't see it improving, not with nothing like the, the, the forest is burning and you're, you're fighting it with nothing. You're just going to watch it burn, right? I appreciate, I, uh, I appreciate the time, Keith. Thanks for the call. Thanks, Fatty. I really appreciate it. Buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Uh, will I get Leonard in or take a break? Try to get on track. Okay, let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Leonard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How long the best this season, buddy? The very same to you, Leonard. Uh, I phoned by because I got, I'm blind, and I, I got really frustrated the other day like for the last three weeks. They were trying to get a hold of the, the RCMP and have a race. And when I do, I usually pick up the RCMP in, in St. John's here who covers Harbor Breeze 
for the phone lines, and it tells her, you know, I, I want to speak to Harold Grace. So then she transferred me out there, and it says press one for this, press two for that, press three for this, press four for that, and and, and basically says, now wait on the line. I wait, wait, hang up. And this has been going on for three weeks. So I phoned back yesterday to her, and then I said, you know, can you hook me up to somebody and have a race? She said, well, sir, don't you listen to the message in front and then follow the directions? I said, man, I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm blind. Uh, I can't pay the numbers off. I can't see them. So, uh, she apologized. And she transferred me again. And Lord God, I'm, I'm just waiting there about 15, 20 minutes, and I still got no answer. And it's all I want to know is why my, my, I had a building down in, in Cabernet that got broken into. And I just want to know the status of it to see, you know, have you found anybody or, or thrown it off the way? You know, it was useless. And, you know, just just let me know. That's all. That's all I want to know. But, but these phone things, we can press one, press two. And the companies don't realize how irritating, I mean, it's irritating to someone who, who, who's seeing but for someone who's blind, I mean, holy God, man, it's, 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 it's cruel. It's cruel. Leonard, what kind of accommodations would help? Well, I, uh, you know, if they say at the end of the message, you know, just hang on, so I'm reaching. Like, I find down to the hell I phone down there, they say, hang on a few minutes, and someone will be with you. And, the, and there is someone with you, you know, and someone with you. And some of them do call with you. But I, I hate it when, when they put you and say, uh, I'm sorry, sir, this is not the department, but I'll, I'll transfer you to the, to the department. And they transfer you to the department, and the person tells excuse me, sir, but uh, I'll, I'll be right back with you now. And don't come back. Just ignore you. Just, you know, I said, aren't you going to make money? You know, to be polite. So, I mean, I, mean I, 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 I use my white cane, and the people are very, 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 I mean, I find them very courteous with me, to tell you the truth. I mean, it is fantastic how they treat me. People don't know me. And it's nice. But, but irritating in a way that you can't get no satisfaction, you know? From, from, and that's, that's the RCMP, you know? And you figure, gee whiz, there's something in the bedroom around, and what, what am I supposed to do? Well, I mean, it costs nothing to be kind and to be empathetic or to understand what someone's predicament or lot in life will be. So it's a shame that it happened like that to you, and I would imagine you're not alone, Leonard. No, I am not alone, and, uh, and that's the hard part about it. You know, people don't realize, you know, that uh, it's, it's hard to maneuver stuff. Well, I mean, well, my, my girlfriend took me up to a place yesterday, we went to Costco, and I was with her, I was, I was hanging on to her elbow, and then we got separated. And, and you know, I got frightened. At seven years old, I got scared. I, I, I know just, just, you know, I didn't know where it was to, or what I was doing, or, you know, I don't know where she was gone. And it, it frightened me, it's the, it's a bad feeling, boys, to be alone, you know. And it seemed like no one cared, you know. Well, that's an unfortunate way to feel, and I can't even imagine that feeling of lost and lonely and confused or afraid. 
I'm sorry it happens to you, Leonard, but when people see the white cane, hopefully they will react in kind. And when someone's on the telephone, whether it be representing the RCMP, the RNC, any level of government, you know, it costs absolutely nothing to be kind. But yet some people can't manage to scrounge up one ounce of it sometimes. I appreciate the call, Leonard. You take good care of yourself. Thanks for this. You too. Thanks, Benny. You're welcome. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Patricia's there to talk about a spam email that's going around. And there's a variety of scams. And Tom's also there to talk about an interesting topic. We'll let Tom explain it when we return. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back. Let's go line number one. Patricia, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello. Oh, hi. Thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. And first, I would like to say God bless the previous caller. (laughs) I just wanted... uh, inform you and your listening audience about a hacker or a scammer or a very despicable person actually um this is my first time caller so i might be a bit nervous uh, yeah take your time go right um i had a message from uh, a friend and she said i really need a favor from you as i'm not in town and at the time i was supposed to be out of town but i had a fall on friday and had to reschedule my my uh visit so uh, she said, sorry to hear that. She said, can you do me a little favor as I'm not in town? Don't know if you can do this for me, but I need to get an Apple gift card, Apple everything, for a family friend. She's an ovarian cancer patient. It's her birthday today. I really cannot do this because I am presently traveled for a friend's burial who lost her life to COVID-19. You can get these cards at a grocery or a convenience store around you. I will refund you next weekend. Please let me know if you can handle this so I can give you the amount needed and how to get it to me. You can buy them at any local grocery store. Please scratch the back of the card carefully, take a picture, attach the card, or copy the pin and email it to me so I can send it to her email address. The total amount to be purchased is $300 Apple gift card, $100 denomination. You will receive your refund next weekend. Can you do this for me? Obviously, she couldn't, and she couldn't afford it, whatever. So anyway, she contacted me, and I explained it had to be the scam. So I automatically went in. I changed all my passwords into the computer and the banking, etc. So then I got another call from a friend, so excited. Oh, Patricia, I have $500 Apple cards here for you. What do you want me to do with them? So he didn't call me initially when he got the message. Uh, he, he just went and got the $500 Apple cards. He did scratch the back of one and the front of it and sent it back to my email. So I just want to get it out to people out there that know not to answer anything or any emails or messages and so this is to me it's a very very bad scammer so anyway she asked the she did get back to the uh, scammer she said where are you now he said waterloo ontario and then uh, i was talking to my friend and my family member last night uh she just answered back where are you and he said i'm in toronto so i went to the rnc and reported it and obviously there's nothing they can do actually to help me as such, only change your password, uh, report it to Facebook. But this uh, friend that gave me the $500 gift cards, 
he's going to report at the RNC and they're going to try to get his money back, right? So isn't that awful? Well, and it's uh, it's just just all too common. Here's a, a helpful, hopefully a helpful tip. If there is any reference to a gift card being used as some sort of compensation and or a gift or some support that is 99.9% of the time a scam. Any reference to gift cards because that's an easy way for them to bilk you out of your hard-earned money and it happens all the time. So every time you hear a reference to a gift card request like that, disregard. Then there's the ongoing one now via text message where people are getting your number, and it looks like it's coming from the government of Newfoundland, and it's about your $500 cost of living check. And you click the link provided, and then you're, they're in your phone or in your laptop or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So at this time of year in particular, every year we hear from the Better, Better Business Bureau about just how frequent and relentless the scammers are when people are feeling, feeling charitable, feeling like they want help, they want to give. And so consequently with that altruistic spirit all of a sudden the next thing they know they're out 500 bucks so be very very careful don't click any links don't share your social insurance number don't share your banking information and just disregard any request for a gift card and i noticed that the rnc as she mentioned she said very seldom do they ask for gift cards is usually cash that's right and so usually your hacker is from another country but my name is Patricia, and when they sent the message to everybody, they signed it as Patsy with my last name. So I thought, that's very strange, usually a, probably a family member or someone I knew with growing up. But apparently, she said, if you get into your email, she might have found an email that said, hi, Patsy. That's right. And they used it that way, right? Yep. But then, then last night, my sister called, and... Uh, she just happened to say, where are you? And she got a reply back, I guess, from that hacker. And he said, uh, if Patsy is such and such a person, do not pay me this money. I'll make sure that you will never, ever get into uh, her account again or speak to her, and I'll make sure of that. Now, I changed all my passwords, and since then, I haven't gotten an email. They shut down my email through Microsoft. Uh, my Google account, I can't get into anymore. So I'm in the process now of Staples helping me to get back through Microsoft to get my emails. So I had to change all my passwords. So it's also a lot of work for the person that they're disguising as, right? You know, But I really feel bad for my friend because he thought he was helping me out, right? Yeah. So. Well, I appreciate you but telling anyway. the folks about it because it's out there. They're lurking around every corner, digital and otherwise. Right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for morning. taking my call. Thank you. You're welcome, Patricia. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fair warning. The gift card bit is a red flag. Disregard. Uh, is it break time, Dave? I kind of lost my uh, spot here. Okay, uh, Tom, appreciate your patience. You're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks for asking. How are you doing? Not too bad. Patty, uh, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a, with a gentleman uh, who was a thalilamide. <laughs> Forgive me with the pronunciation there. Thalilamide. Th- uh, victim. Uh, for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with with that term, it, it was a it was a drug given to uh, pregnant uh, mothers in the late fifties, early sixties to combat a morning sickness, and the result, of course, was devastating. It caused uh, miscarriages, birth defects, missing limbs, all those kind of things. Uh, the young this this person. Um, He's not aware if there are other people in the province uh, who were victims like him. 
because again, I don't know if the drug was widely uh, dispensed here in this province or not. Uh, but he, he would like to be in contact and see if there's people out there because there's a federal program available for assisting uh, these people. Uh, and he would like to just talk to them to, to see uh, if there are people there and direct them to, to the government program that could help them um, uh, because it is, uh, you know, uh, a, a disease uh, and that affected these people so that they have limbs missing and, and they have sight problems and hearing problems and a host of other physical disabilities. Oh, absolutely. It can so. be all kinds of skeletal damage. I actually know someone who was a thalidomide baby. I don't really know them well, but I have met them and had a conversation. This was, as they refer to, the biggest man-made medical disaster of all time. This drug was given to women in, I believe, it was some 40 or 45 countries around the world, and it absolutely was in Canada as well. So I'm happy to try to connect anyone out there who is a thalidomide baby. This particular fella, his two arms are basically two inches of arms and then some malformed hands. That's, that was his disfigurement that he was born with as a result. So the last baby born with that drug in their mother was in the early 60s. I think 1961 or 62 or something like that. And the only reason yeah. I know any of that is because I tried to read a bit about it when I met this fellow. And yeah. I have no idea if he knows about government programs of support either. So yeah. are we going to give out this guy's name and contact info? We no, just want to leave it with Dave or what do you want to do? He's a bit shy and he's dealing through his sister and everything. So what I'd like to be able to do is to ask anybody out there like that to call the hub, to speak to Jerry there, and Jerry will give you this gentleman's number, uh, and he will then, uh, they can communicate and do as they wish, uh, and he'll direct them to the programs that are available for all this funding and things. Uh, so uh, just call the hub, the number there is 754-0352. And Jerry will give you this uh, this man's uh, number, and then they can communicate. And as I say, they will uh, he'll be able to show them what the program to are. Now I've done a little bit of research myself since then, and yeah, there is a there is a program available for 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 these victims. And uh, and I think like you that uh, I wasn't aware of it, and I'm educated too, and getting educated by the minister about this. So. Yeah, well, we're happy to be part of trying to connect people on that front. Uh, it was sold in a, du- a couple of different drug names. It was Thalamid was one for the obvious reasons. And then another trade name was Conchigen or Conturgen or something, if I remember my, my recall's a bit poor these days. I'm getting old. But, uh, yeah, so if anyone out there knows someone or you yourself are one of these babies and would like to connect with Tom's friend, just get in touch yeah. with us or give the hub a call, speak with Tom directly, and away we go. Perfect. Thank you. And two more quick points, if I can, Patty. Yeah. This is the first time in a whole bunch of years that we're able to have a New Year's Eve function at the hub uh, because of difficulties with, again, it was COVID. And prior to that, it was with trying to get the go bus system in place. So we're having one this year, thanks to a lot of the help from uh, from Councillor Sheila or from Deputy Mayor Sheila, who has been helping me with this. We have transportation and we will have an event. So uh, it's going to be very special, so anybody who would like to go, please please call down and get yourself a ticket. And We, we uh, cut costs, are very, very minimal, just to cover our costs. So uh, that's the first. The second thing is we had to get rid of our dumpster and our parking lot because it was being filled to overflow every day, so I actually got rid of it. And when I came into work uh, yesterday morning, what should I see in the middle of my parking lot? Somebody dropped off 
a sofa and a bed frame. Uh, <laughs> I'm at my wit's end as to what to do. Uh, we got to pay to get rid of these things. And like all charities in the province, we're struggling. And yet, these are what people are doing to us, dropping off their furniture in the middle of our parking lot. Uh, I know there's nothing you can do about this. Uh, and the people who are doing this don't apparently care about what's costing us. But my, oh, my, oh, my. It's just so frustrating sometimes where you're trying to get ahead. And this is the situation you're faced with, having to call a moving company to come and get rid of the garbage that people are dropping in your parking lot. People are oblivious, you know, once it's out of their hands, out of their sight, it's out of their mind, regardless of what the impact is on the other end. It's just crazy, boy. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call this morning, Patty. I appreciate it. Happy to do it, Tom. Take care of yourself. Okay. Bye-bye. David, uh, two. Is that the next best option? Okay, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rhonda. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Nice to talk to you. You too. Um, so I just had a little stint in Ars Kirby and uh, a fantastic group of ladies down there and a lot of story to tell at another time. But um, these ladies, uh, when you go in Ars Kirby, I didn't realize the need for certain things. You go in and it's a total, it's just like going to the moon. Uh the first thing happened when I got there was I lost my charger and certain little things you're trying to acclimate to communal living. I totally didn't get that at all. And I was about two and a half weeks. Um, when you go in there, uh, you are covered with your food and your housing and your safety and security. And it's perfect. I had no idea how to fit in. And right away, my money went uh, everything that I really needed I misplaced because I was just trying to breathe and trying to fit in so I, from my point of view if um, donations were focused around simple things like cab fares super cab drivers everyone I met are fantastic uh, maybe bus passes maybe somebody could a ride. I know a lady spent over $1,000 in cab rides. I, she would stop in the Tim Hortons one night just to get her meds. Every day she has to walk. She stopped in Tim Hortons one night when she came out. Her, her coat with everything in it was gone. I watched her come back to the house. She was broken, soaking wet, frozen. She had nothing on her. Um... Chargers for phones, iPhones, that you lose that, you're gone. Uh, most people down there smoke cigarettes. A lighter, a cigarette, pop. People crave pop just for the security home. I don't know if I'm overstating things. Well, I mean, I don't know, nor have I been there. But if there's little things that can make it a little bit easier, because obviously some serious trauma and issues at play, if you find yourself at Iris Kirby House, now that you were there, uh, are you safe now? Do you have a place? What's going on? Oh, actually, Patty, the whole perception of why I went down and came out, partner drove me down and I had the perception that he was the abuser but in fact it was a series of events and like I don't want to get into it. No you don't have to. But he was my savior and when I called out to everybody 
because I had nothing, nobody. And the only person, the only reason he didn't get back to me was because I had him blocked. I'm not really good with text. So three days in, we had an argument and I blocked him. And I thought I unblocked him. I did unblock him. And he didn't sleep the night while I was there. And nor did I. And when I called him, when the, when I had to leave Iris Kirby, he offered, he said, Randy, come home, take the apartment. And now we're back together, engaged and stronger than ever, Patty. This, oh. Whatever this was, this led me to this point, And I'm so blessed for everything I went through. I thank you, Dave, everybody, because you're an integral part to this story. And there's so much more to tell. Well, I'm glad you're doing okay, number one. And I appreciate the, uh, the, the thought that, you know, there are so many different organizations out there that need so much at this time. And if, you know, you're doing some shopping or you'd like to pick up a gift card, something that might be able to help one of the women or their children living at our Kirby house, that's yet another option they can consider when they try to ma- make their way through and navigate the holiday season. I'm glad you're doing well, Rhonda, and I appreciate the time. Oh, no problem. And just to let you know, I do have a Facebook group started. Uh, if anybody wants to get in contact with me to help direct or anything, I'm so pro these women. They're, a little smile goes a long way for these ladies. They are, they are warriors. For sure. Thank you, Rhonda. Take good care. And you too. God bless you all. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take oh, well, check with Dave first. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, the Auditor General for the province is Denise Hanrahan. Her most recent report, I guess coming from her office, is regarding corrections. And what she found through the course of 2017 to 2019, that policies were either deficient or non-existent. Joining us on line number one is the AG, Denise Hanrahan. Good morning, Ms. Hanrahan. You're on the air. Good morning. Should I call you Ms. Hanrahan or Denise? What do you prefer? You can call me Denise. Thank you, Denise. I appreciate it. So (laughs) your office has been busy and revealing a lot of important facts for us to consider. And with Corrections NL, sometimes when we talk about corrections on this program, People think, you know, well, we can't be treating prisoners like they're being put up at the Ritz-Carlton. But this report deals with public safety and some of the gaps upon release in particular. What did you find? So we found that, uh, unfortunately, you know, it was inadequate efforts, really, to appropriately and consistently manage uh, adult offenders in custody and in community. And, you know, from our perspective, as the Auditor General, certainly for me, if public funds are expended on a program, then they have to have value. And that value uh, needs to come through in efficient and effective programming. So let's talk about why they're incarcerated. What were the problems identified? So we identified in, uh, you know, that there were gaps in policy. Uh, Certainly the legislation that was passed in 2011, uh, it was not, in fact, uh, is not the, the legislation that actually governs. Um, these areas in the province. Uh, We found issues with case management and rehabilitation program. And of course, this entire program is built in a very logical fashion in that if offenders aren't assessed for risks and needs when they enter custody, of course, meaningful case management can't be done, which means rehabilitation 
uh, effective rehabilitation won't happen. And then, of course, we also had some findings with respect to release planning and court monitoring, um, where if you're not helping offenders transition into the community, then this is where you have even more risk um, that there could be issues from a public safety perspective. The legislation uh, that was updated in 2011 was as old as the 1970s regarding adult corrections. Okay, so inside we know that if you can't have proper case management because all of the procedures aren't there in black and white and enforced by legislation and whatever other oversight is required, then it's going to be almost impossible on the other end to have a seamless or an efficient reintegration into society. So these are hand in glove. It's one thing when you're behind the walls, we can't see you. Quite another when you're living in our communities and we can see you. But at some point, even the inmates aren't getting a fair shot at reintegration because of what happened while they were inside the prison itself. Well, and you know, that was one of the things for us when we look at uh, having an impactful audit is about, you know, identifying issues that we believe can be remedied and then would actually improve uh, the delivery of these public services. The new legislation, for example, requires uh, that there is communication between the adult custody group and the community corrections group in order to hand off files, deal with offender files, those types of things, which is common in in many sectors. Uh, You know, if you leave a hospital and you go into long-term care, there's an expectation that your file follows you, type of thing. So, you know, there are um, a lot of things here that are meant to prevent uh, future incarcerations or to help deal with all the issues that uh, get encountered. Talk about the some of the release gaps, though, whether it be curfew checks or assessing who people are, where they are, who they're associated with. What are you, what are you seeing? So, you know, with respect to the court conditions monitoring, I think that's probably what you're talking about. We found that, you know, probation officers didn't always supervise offenders in accordance with those standards. Um, They couldn't consistently monitor compliance with those conditions um, or enforce compliance when breaches occurred. And we found, for example, that if a court ordered testing, um, they didn't have a system uh, to be able to gather uh, and test those samples. So, of course, that puts uh, those um, officers uh, in a bit of conflict because they're not able to fulfill their duties. Is it a human resources issue? Or are we just strapped so thin with probation officers and extreme caseloads, or what's behind this? So, you know, in, when we do audits, we do samples, we talk about things that we've encountered, um, and we tell the evidence as we get. I mean, there, there could be many causes for why things happen the way they happen, and we certainly hope that is something that the department would take away and assess um, and deal with. And if it is a resourcing issue, if it is a process issue or a systems issue, I mean, we do identify in this report some issues with the offender management program, um, you know, those types of things, and that's certainly where we would think. But we don't tell departments how to fix their problems. We tell them where there's gaps and hope that there's alternatives that they can pursue. And of course, some of these shortcomings, I'll call them, are kind of out of the hands of some of the case managers or probation officers. For instance, if you're talking about drug and alcohol testing and some of it's not being done because there's no place for the samples and analysis to be be, uh, dealt with. So, you know, if you read the story as it's written today, maybe some people focus in on say, well, there's certain people not doing their jobs, but some of their jobs are a little bit handcuffed because they have no place for sample collection, analysis, and then results. There's a reason why, particularly in a public service, we have detailed policies 
and then we follow that with operational procedures and protocols because you need to make sure there's consistent application of those standards so that people know how to do what's expected. Um, and so if people don't have the tools, be it a computer system, a policy, a procedure, um, it's very challenging for them to be able to fulfill consistently um, how they do their work. So, yeah, there's, um, there's lots of factors at play in fairness. The Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, says they, uh, his department accepts all of your recommendations, which is fine, but what's next steps to ensure that accepting actually leads to action? So, you know, the department did a note in our report some particular actions that they plan to take to implement our recommendations. We're happy to see that. And we do note in our report, as a pretty standard audit process for us, that we do look at uh, what has happened after our audit period in December of 2019. And we look and they have put in, you know, there's a pilot on electronic monitoring. They've done some training. So we're happy to see that. Um, so our audit is up to date. But we are uh, hopeful that um, when we do our follow-ups, that's what we normally do with our reports, we do follow-ups uh, to see. And we're excited to see that, you know, they're going to uh, make a priority of implementing the new legislation and the regulations. Another step that is a very powerful tool in making sure that our reports have some longevity uh, and have some impact is certainly the role of the Public Accounts Committee. And so they are the, the next group that can take our reports and can uh, act on them. And we've had good support from that committee um, with respect to getting action plans from the departments and making sure that our recommendations that the public paid for us to do get implemented so we can improve that accountability and ensure that there's good value put to public resources. Did any of the audit include the initial training, ongoing training, and staffing issues for the correctional officers? So we, um, as we went down through uh, this audit, you know, because we were very specific about what areas that we looked at, every one of the sections that we looked at, be it case management, uh, release planning, those types of things, um, we did identify that in some cases the training um, may have been not refreshed, so it may have been older, or the training, we were told informally a lot of this training happens uh, from the perspective of job shadowing, which is not unusual. Uh, lots of people learn by doing in professions. Um, but we, we expected, and I think we do note, that there needs to be more formalized training and there needs to be more supports given to be sure that the people that have to do this work uh, understand what is expected so that they can be evaluated against that expectation and the work can be done effectively. Anything else on this particular report? I'd like to ask a couple of questions about some most, more recent reports as well. Nope, this is fine. Go ahead. Okay. So regarding the two reports tabled in the House of Assembly regarding uh, what was then Nalcor, now Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, I think it's fair to say that Jennifer Williams has a, a done a good job reining things in with the elimination of some bonuses and trimming the numbers of people at the executive level. And, of course, the, remun the remuneration packages. Some of it has been dealt with, but not all of it. There's still a disparity between very similar job descriptions and people working in the public sector, I would suggest, in the Confederation Building versus working at Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. What's the follow-up from your department, or is this just a matter of Ms. Williams and Cabinet making the required moves? 
So when we release our report with our recommendations, of course, the next step for us as an office is we do a follow-up analysis uh, in a timely manner and we go back and look to see if government has indeed assessed any of, or, you know, the entity, in this case, uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, Hydro, have done anything with respect to our recommendations. Um, You know, and I appreciate that. I think there has been change that has happened on that front on these topics that we had, particularly the compensation one. However, it is still concerning that that an entity can have a job that is identical from a classification perspective to another job elsewhere in the public service and be paid significantly differently. It's not a small difference. It's significant. And it's not just salary. It's also benefits. Um, This is not really, uh, we understand that there are differences all over the public service with hard to fill positions, with fulfilling particular mandates. I am sure if you spoke to Uh, somebody in transportation and infrastructure, they would tell you how difficult it is to get sometimes people to work doing snowplows. Very important work. It is a very particular set of skills to be able to operate a snowplow. And so they often are challenged to fill those roles, as I am sure uh, other people are in other parts. And and Treasury Board has mechanisms for dealing with those differences. And there are ways of dealing. And the government right now is dealing with it in healthcare. Um, But when we look at similar roles and we made a point of having a subject matter expert to ensure that we were comparing apples to apples. I think that's our concern there. So we hope that be it the Public Accounts Committee, government, or the entity itself does take our report uh, in good faith and does pursue it um, because we really do want to have that positive change. We're not looking for a gotcha. We're not looking to blame anybody. This is really about improving because really what happens is one part of government uh, takes all the employees from another part of government because it is only natural for people to have to take care of themselves. Uh, last one. So that those two reports were done at uh, Nalcor and Al Hydro. Is Oil Co, oil co next? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, uh, it is. I think our intention is certainly to uh, continue this because um, that seems to be the end of this cycle for us, and it wasn't originally included. So I'm pretty sure that's our intention to go there. We've got uh, four active audits now. Obviously, I'm sure you're aware Memorial University has been one that government has asked us to do. That's a massive audit for us, and we're working on that as we speak. Um, and we had some existing ones in the queue, uh, and we're very conscious of, uh, and I've learned a lot of lessons in my year and a half uh, with respect to the need to be timely and the need to be very specific. And so um, we are hoping to turn around those. But, uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say that that's uh, an area we certainly are looking at. Do you mind telling us what else in the Hopper Beyond Memorial? So right now we have um, a review we're doing into the Office of the High Sheriff, their operations and oversight. Uh, That's an audit we started planning last year and are hopeful we will release next year. We're also looking into the Innovation and Business Investment Corp, their core programs and COVID support programs, and that's another one that we're hoping to conclude uh, in 2023. And the other one that we have ongoing right now is food premises inspection and licensing programs. Um, And our intention is that uh, we will look at those three in addition to Memorial and probably a few others. Um, as you know, uh, we've been implementing our new legislation, uh, trying to get uh, resourced up in a good space, and then we certainly are expecting to increase the amount of public communication. So you'll find it on our website now. We'll start talking about our work in progress. We think it's really important that the public know what we're doing and what value we're bringing. You mentioned being resourced up. Do you have a full complement of staff required to take on these big audits? 
Not yet. We're getting close. We've uh, added a, a significant number of bodies now in the last couple of months. It's been fantastic, and they are chomping at the bit and eager. We've added Eastern Health as one of our financial statement audits, so that's a massive change for our office. That's a really large financial statement audit to take on, but we really are uh, getting behind that new legislation and that new mandate, and I'm, I'm really proud to lead such a team of professionals that really get our job of that positive change and that improving accountability. I really appreciate the time this morning, and we all thank you for collectively for the good work done at the Auditor General's office. Thank you very much for this. Thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Denise. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Denise Hanran is the province's Auditor General. When we come back, we're talking about contracts at the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association. Don't go away. Back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Mike, you're on the air. Eddie, back a few months ago, I went to the uh, NL. ML and uh, requested that they try to give me some help or whatever with the contracts with Eastern Health of the ripoffs and all the money that's being paid out excessively and that and whatever. And they wouldn't have anything to do with it. But now that it's uh, into their domain, that they're looking for more money and whatever, they're coming out with this complaint about this this other company, uh, Fomec. Uh, I don't get it there because, if you know, there, there's all of the contracts with Eastern Health should be looked at. There, every one of them are a big ripoff. And if anybody thinks that Compass Group are very far from this contract, this is their method. This has got Compass written all over it. And they're there big time, and they're and guaranteed they're fully aware of this contract, and they're involved into it somehow or other either through the back door or the front door, or however, they're, they're there. But the thing that gets me is that I'm only nobody. The press, whatever, VOCM, CBC, NTV News, anybody. When a doctor speaks up, they all jump on one thing. When I went on your show, and with your help, and that, whatever, and through us, we saved the government $6 million on these contracts, over $6 million a year. They had it written into the contract that the Compass Group were being paid. All of the monies in the hotels and the restaurants and that and everything else all went into the Compass Bank account. And the government were paying all the expenses and everything else. Now written into the new contract, the money is going into the Compass Bank account, but they're responsible for all of the expenses and labor and everything else. And now I got uh, a tip request in to find out if this is actual savings showed up on the bottom line of the Compass Group or whatever, and I can't get any satisfaction. I've got a tip request in the analysis last July. They're still on to them. The Compass Group are blocking the answers to it, and I also got an a tip request there of what role Compass Group are playing into the a tip of Eastern Health, because it seems like from from what I can gather and. I need their information that and stuff to prove it. Is that they're involved somehow with these this, uh, the the tip of Eastern Health, which is illegal. They're a contractor. Uh, it's clearly defined in the statements and that and stuff, whatever in the contract that they are a contractor and only a contractor. And they're not entitled to any of my a tip requests or anybody else's. Uh, same way with any contractor. So when it comes down to the bottom line, is that. If we don't all stick together, 
the NLMA, they all got to get together with the nurses union, with the other unions and that and stuff. They're all being taken advantage of. We're all being skinned. Uh, millions and millions of dollars going into this province unnecessarily because of a weak executive and CEOs of Eastern Health. And it's just totally and utterly ridiculous. But if we're going to nitpick one at a time, they're not going to get anywhere with it. We all got to get together, do a proper story on this, do a proper study. And I just noticed that the Auditor General uh, never said anything about the review that was done with the Auditor General and the Compass Group with Eastern Health. This study was done, the review was done, but it was never, ever released. Why? Where's it to? Now, she never mentioned that it was one of the things she was working on. And I can't get any satisfaction from her on this subject. I can't get nothing. She won't even answer nothing. She won't do nothing. So all of this stuff here, we've got to have the politicians, if we got any that are decent on it, and uh, things to get something going here to stop these contracts. There's not only the Compass Group, there's not only this whole phone tech, it's uh, Black McDonald, it's Honeywell, and a whole group of other ones that are all tied together. And the ringleaders are, are the Compass Group, but nobody knows what companies they own that they don't know. Yeah, the connection is getting a bit wonky here, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can go back to the Auditor General and ask about these particular pieces of work that have been done and see if I can figure anything out. Yes, because the review was done. Dr. Hagee was supposed to release it at the start of COVID. It was never, ever done. And I got a request into, into it for the Auditor General. Uh, the, all of the communications between Eastern Health and the Auditor General on the Compass contract. And I haven't got nothing back yet, but that, that was only done recently because I had to go and reword it because they're trying to get around the words that I put into the request to deny me actually what I want. And you got to make it very specific. And I'm going to be surprised that NLMA gets anything back from ATIP of, of what they're looking for from this company because they'll have it tied up so that it's all this private confidential information and whatever, and it won't be released. And like I said, I'm waiting now six months for the same type of information. But to me, here, they haven't shown, uh, the NLMA haven't shown good faith as regards to they're selfish in the point that they're doing it here because this is their cause. They're not doing it for the rest of the people or the province. When this thing is the same thing governing our nurses and our union workers staff, like anybody now that's working with Eastern Health cannot get an advancement. They cannot step up the ladder because the Compass Group are getting all of the management positions. And, you know, all of this stuff is going on underneath their noses. Nobody doing thing. Nobody saying thing. The press won't do anything. And But like I said, the doctor opens his mouth about one little thing, which is minor compared to the rest of it, and nothing. And uh, you know, it's only with a bit with your help that uh, I've been able to get it out there of, of a lot of the stuff that's going on. And I appreciate what you do. It, you, you let me go on with it. But why the press, why they won't do a proper story onto it, I don't know. I've gone to CBC, Terry Roberts, uh, different ones there, and uh, NTV, uh, Mark Dwyer, 
you know, and I've gone to them all, and none of them will do a story on it. And well, I, I can't speak for the other outlets, and nor do I feel like throwing any of them under the bus because I don't know what the conversation look like, sound like, what they can or can or not do. or Like, I just don't know. I don't work there. But, yeah, I know. But I appreciate the information you share with me via email and otherwise and bringing it to light here on the program. I'm late for the break, but keep it up, Mike, and thanks for this this morning. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Will I get another one on? No, I should get to the break. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead. Let's get to the break. When we come back, there's an issue with getting some Christmas hampers. Then we're going to talk about some things apparently going on in Western Canada, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. So someone just told me there's a bit of an audio glitch. Apparently when we come back from break, sometimes there's a lingering ad running under my voice and the caller's voice. So we, we acknowledge that now. I, I can't hear it in my headset, but I'll put that to the engineer so we can settle it and solve it for you. Let's go to line number three. Catherine, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? That's bad. How, are you? how about you? I'm doing well. I'm first time caller, so I'm kind of a little bit nervous. Take your time. Um, we I just recently got out from being incarcerated. I'm living with my daughter. She's 33 years old, so I'm kind of like a burden to her until I get things straightened out. Um, we've fallen in the hands of social assistance and then realized about Christmas hampers and stuff we could apply for. Um, we live out around the bay. We've called everywhere from Whitburn to Carbonier, Her Grace, Bay Roberts, Dogo, Greens Harbor. Everywhere we call, they're telling us that we're too late to apply for a Christmas hamper. And we don't know where else to turn. So you're kind of like my last resort. So I figured I'd call you to see if you knew some kind of organization or something who could take us on. Um, she has two children, uh, 16 and 10. A uh, boy, 16, and her girl was 10. So, I mean, she's in... She's in a hard shape, and she wouldn't call because she's too upset. And we're just wondering if there's any way you can find somebody that would help us out or if there is some kind of organization that you can help us out with. As far as I know, at this point of the year, most every organization I'm familiar with says that they have so many people on the waiting list. All their resources have been already uh, assigned to one family or another. But have you tried the Single Parent Association? Have you tried the Salvation Army? Those two come to mind. Yes. Yes, that's all that we've been to is the Salvation Army. Uh, my daughter did call the Single Parent Association, and um, they were done over in November. She said, taking names. Like, but um, I don't know which way to turn, only other than leave you my information. And if anybody hears of any kind of late program, they can give you a call or something. Sure. Dave has your number, so we're happy to do that. If anyone reaches out, whether it be an organization or an individual, and they say that they can indeed help you and your family, we'll be happy to put you in connect, uh, connect you with them. Okay. Thank you. Take good care. Good luck. You're welcome, Rhonda. Or Catherine, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's go line number two. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and you're listening to the audience. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, my issue this morning, I have concerns pertaining and questions pertaining to uh, Western province of Alberta. 
I noticed they recently enacted legislation uh, declaring uh, Alberta a sovereign nation or sovereign province. Not particularly. Uh, that's, particularly? No, I mean, it, that doesn't make the said declaration, but the Sovereignty Act is an effort to have more control over decisions to be made about Alberta's future by Albertans versus Ottawa. Now, curiously, when Miss Smith, the new Premier, Danielle Smith, ran for the leadership position, the Sovereignty Act was a big part of her platform, but uh, some of the big, wide-sweeping initiatives in there have been walked back, and rightfully so, including the ability for her cabinet to bypass the legislature, rewrite laws as they see fit, which is the most anti-democratic thing we could ever consider, but yeah, it has been enacted now in the province of Alberta. Still, I don't think I understand the complete of uh, the ins and the outs. But I mean, there was even a point where um, Premier Smith said that she and her cabinet would ignore federal judicial rulings and have all this uh, unbelievable power inside cabinet and cabinet alone. But some of that has changed. Oh, yes, that's what I call. But on the other side of the coin, of course, if that would give Alberta more benefits uh, from the federal government, uh, wouldn't other provinces want to declare their province a sovereign uh, nation also? Yeah, but that's that's not exactly what happened. But uh, Saskatchewan's following suit. They've got right. very similar. Saskatchewan is following suit. They have very similar uh, conversations and legislation being proposed. And of course, they all do it with the exact same comment that you'll hear every single time: "Is well, if it's good enough for Quebec, it's good enough for us." Uh, yes. And there's an uh, argument uh, there. Yes, I remember uh, Stephen Harper, of course, uh, uh, gave uh, uh, Quebec that uh, option, I suppose. They're, they're, they're a nation within a nation or something? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Quebec does get an awful lot of uh, very convenient leeway from the federal government, including carbon taxes, which they get a distinct break. There is a carbon tax in Quebec. In fact, they were the first province to enact a carbon tax, but it's uh, far less being paid uh, when compared to other provinces. Then, of course, people look to the level of taxation, so consequently provincial revenues and what that means for equalization and some of the breaks they're given with uh, uh, the really very forceful uh, enforcement of the language laws. As I indicated, if if that gives the provinces some benefit, why why wouldn't we want to do the same in other provinces? It's whether or not it's actually constitutional, I think, was yet to be. It depends on whether or not it's actually constitutional. Uh, Well, yes, I think it shouldn't be, from my point of view, I think it it shouldn't be allowed anyway, because I don't think it's, uh, it's very. I don't think it's constitutional. Of course, I don't know personally. Uh, I'm not a, a expert in, in constitutional law, but I think it uh, uh, should be looked at. The other thing is, of course, it does. From my point of view, I think, uh, of course, seems like the world now is becoming uh, nationalism. Of course, uh, is uh, seems like a common uh, theme now in the world. Everybody wants to become their own, own I guess, their own nation, etc., and independent and what have you. The other thing is, of course, now, uh, I think Alberta certainly, uh, uh, I know they're, they're, so I think they're indicating that they're not really getting probably the loin share under confirmation, too. The other point is, of course, now, uh, looking at Newfoundland, uh, we have a wonderful province here, and we have a lot of resources. And, of course, uh, I never did agree with the formula of, of uh, the numbers game because uh, because of the numbers, of course, uh, Quebec and uh, other problems can get uh, obtain more from the federal government under 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 the confederation. Uh, but certainly Newfoundland now, if I understand, I don't think we're we're receiving any equalization payments now, are we? No, we're not. We're not. So really, and we're paying our own way. The other thing I like to 
it'd be nice to look at uh, what our population, as opposed to what we are uh, contributing to confederation, which I think we are contributing enormously to uh, Canada and always have been. The yeah, other point, but that's now, not really uh, how that stuff me? works, though. You know, like Albertans will say that Alberta pays too much in transfer payments when individuals don't pay transfer payments, uh, or pardon me, provinces don't. It's all based on provincial revenue. So Albertans... I'm aware of that, yeah, yes. But hold on. Uh, Albertans, yes, luckily, luckily... We are, we are paying our way, and I'd say if we want to do it, anybody want to do a study, and we can certainly uh, uh, verify what we are contributing to Canada. The other point, I noticed you had a person there from the other General's uh, Department uh, prior to my call, and... Uh, uh, I remember doing, I think the, I saw in the paper this morning or yesterday, I think uh, the author general found that the public really wasn't uh, protected uh, from uh, people that were, I think, on parole and people that actually were uh, pro-car laws. Uh, I, I'm, I, on a personal note, I remember in 19, I think it was 91 or 92, I did a research paper on um, education and, I guess, uh, training and rehab in in the uh, in federal institutions, and I think uh, I was talking to uh, I think Dorchester people, etc. And I also looked at the province uh, that was not ninety one ninety two. I'm not quite sure now, uh, but uh, they, I can of course I can uh, I, I learned one thing of course, uh, most uh, people that break provincial laws I think uh, a lot of the inmates I think were requesting I think two. Uh, two years plus one day, that would give them federal time. So then they would go to a federal institution. And the reason why, of course, they would get better training in, in, uh, in, in federal institutions. And I found at that time there was literally nothing uh, in training and rehab for our uh, inmates uh, here in the province. So, uh, you know, so I certainly, I thought, this you're talking about 30 years now, that was 30 years ago, uh, and they still haven't had anything, obviously, in our, in our provincial uh, um, prison to uh, rehab or re- rehabilitate or train those people. So maybe certainly, uh, you know, the Alder General certainly had made a good point, and uh, certainly yes, that should be looked at then, you know. The other thing, I thought Nelcor was disbanded. You mentioned Nelcor this morning. It was, yeah. So aren't there still people working with Nelcor? No, it's all Newfoundland Labrador Hydro now. Newfoundland Hydro, okay. And the oil coal, yeah. Okay. Well, I thank you for taking my call. Another point, I know we have Bruno on quite often. I think he made some good points here in the morning. I was listening to him pertaining to the hydro, I think, I think on the West Coast. And uh, so anyway, uh, he certainly contributed to, to, to your show. And I know sometimes it could be a bit irritating, so maybe he may be a long-winded, but I don't know the individual, but he certainly contributes to it, to your to, to your open-line show, Patty. Appreciate that, Vic. Thanks for the time and this I morning. thank you for taking my call. Anytime. Have a, have a, nice, year. Have a nice day. Bye now. You too. Bye-bye. Um, and the equalization thing, look. Quebec does get an awful lot of leeway. They really, truly do. No one can argue that point. But, you know, there's always so much missing from the conversations. Like, for instance, when the Premier of Alberta was Jason Kenney and Quebec was the absolute boogeyman for Kennedy, Kenny, and he loved it, and the supporters of the Conservative Party loved it. 
What he always failed to mention, though, is that the current equalisation formula being used was crafted, formulated in the past when he was a senior cabinet minister. He was in the room. You know, but that gets left out of the conversation. And of course, I have lots of, I've spent a decade in Alberta. My boys are born in Alberta. I have a distinct soft spot in my heart for Alberta. But again, you know, people are just led to believe that the province pays all this money to the Federation when that's just not how it works. Individuals pay their taxes. So in Alberta, the highest rate of pay, the median rate of pay in the country, the lowest rate of taxation in the country. So of course, it feels like they're getting screwed. But my goodness, I bet you a lot of provinces would change their financial circumstances quite quickly. And didn't they just record a $13 billion surplus? And of course, that's because of the volatility of a global commodity. That's the price of a barrel of oil. So, yeah, Kenny was in the room when the equalization formula was passed and it's still being applied today. There was lots of requests from provinces to change it, including some exemptions for hydro revenue inside the province of Quebec. But that conversation is as complicated as it is irritating. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. The Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador's Paul Toomey. He joins us on four. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about yourself? Good, good. Great show. I got three quick things for you, Patty, this morning. Uh, one's an announcement. Uh, I'll probably start with that. Uh, today we uh, made uh, released our uh, 2023 Renata Elizabeth Withers Memorial Scholarship Applications. So we're inviting applications for two $1,000 scholarships. Uh, the criteria in that and everything is on our website, so I won't, won't go down through that. But it's uh, post-secondary students and, uh, I guess, um, graduate students and undergraduate students are uh, welcome to apply. It's a scholarship that the Foundation has been doing for the, the better part of its, its existence, obviously, it's uh, the scholarships are donated by the Withers family, and uh, it's a great way to uh, to help out students who have a, an interest in eating disorders or, or who are planning to do some of their uh, schoolwork in that area. So we encourage applications from anybody who's uh, who qualifies and go to our website to get the information on it. Uh, the second item I wanted to talk about quickly. Um, we uh, have been doing a series of information pieces during the year now with Christmas coming upon us called Coping During the Holidays. Uh, the holiday time and the focus on food tends to be a very difficult period of time for people who are dealing with an eating disorder. So we're certainly encouraging people to uh, to look at some of the mechanisms to support themselves and certainly to call us or go to our website to get information on what you can do for support. Uh, we're certainly here, and we're more than willing to uh, to offer support and suggestions on on how you can deal with the holidays. Not only the individuals, but families who uh, who are supporting their their loved one in ways that they can help as well to make the holidays an easier period of time for uh, an eating disorder uh, client. And some of this happens so. I'll, I'll say innocently, because food is a big part of the holidays for so many families. And people aren't trying to be malicious and, uh, you know, uh, oblivious to the fact that someone may be struggling. So just to be mindful of simple things, like someone who might be struggling with an eating disorder, someone that might be struggling with alcohol, someone who might not have the, the cash or the wherewithal to get involved in your Kris Kringles, just little things that just a couple of seconds of thought, and you might think, oh, maybe we can do this a little bit differently. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Patty, and and you're right, it applies to more than just eating disorders. But it is a case of all of us, I think, just taking that moment to consider uh, the people that are around us and the things that could be helpful and the things that, you know, to us are not harmful but could be for other individuals. So uh, we're certainly here to to support people, and uh, between our website and talking to our counselor, you can certainly get the kind of supports that, that you need to uh, as as a, a client, somebody who's dealing with an eating disorder, and also as a family member who just wants to be more careful and who wants to learn a little bit about the things they should be doing and saying. Fair enough, and you needn't even be involved with the eating disorder community because you never know if you're one of those folks who has a big circle of friends and some of these conversations are held very silently or quietly or not at all, just to understand what's going on. And you might be able to just very simply make some adjustments to how you present, what you serve, and, you know, the repeated, because I know I'm bad for this too. If I have people in, I'm all over you, like I'm working at the Ritz-Carlton. Can I get you anything? Can I get you anything? Can I get you anything? So at some point, maybe something as simple as, you know, it's the one offering, and then if there's a no, it's a no. Yeah. No, absolutely right, and uh, I couldn't have said it any better, and I, I appreciate your your comments and, you, and your take on that. But, uh, again, our website and uh, and contact us directly, certainly, if, if people want to learn a bit more about uh, these types of things. And, finally, i got to put in a push. i got to tell you, Patty, last week we spoke about our Christmas flyaway sweep. Our phones started ringing the minute I got off the line with you, and that day alone we sold some 15 tickets. Terrific. So we've got a week left. Uh, this time next week we will no longer be selling tickets. We'll be getting ready for the uh, for the draw on, uh, on the Irish Newfoundland show on Saturday morning with our good friend Greg Smith. Um, the prize, two economy class tickets valid for travel to any Air Canada scheduled destination in North America, including Hawaii, Mexico, and the Caribbean, plus a one-night stay at the Comfort Inn in St. John's. Tickets are available now. There are about 40 tickets left of the 149. So the chance of winning is pretty good. One in 149. The tickets are $49. We're here. We're ready to take your orders. So... Over the next week, I want to see all those tickets gone. I would love to have a sold-out ticket suite this year. Me too. I'm really glad that it's getting some attention and hopefully a sell-out. Uh, so whether or not you can apply and are eligible for these two $1,000 scholarships, whether you want to buy a ticket for the Christmas flyaway, and maybe some helpful advice as to how you may think about navigating the holiday season. Yep. Absolutely. EDFNL.ca will give you everything you need, including our phone numbers and email addresses for our counselor and others in our office. I appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you, Patty. And just in case this is the last time we're chatting between now and Christmas, I uh, hope you and your family, Lynn and the boys, have uh, have a wonderful Christmas, and I look forward to continuing the discussions in the new year. Appreciate the time, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and yours as well, Paul. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Great day. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number three. Colleen, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. It's going to be kind of quick. No problem. Uh, just wanted to let you let your audience know, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Human Rights Association is celebrating International Day of the Child with Disabilities today uh, by presenting their Newfoundland and Labrador Human Rights Awards. 
Terrific. So I wanted to let you guys know, uh, I did send you an email and the information. If anybody wants to uh, watch this, it's on Zoom, and the link is there, and the number you need to to access the Zoom link is there. So please watch it. Todd and Kim Churchill have been nominated, and I hope and pray that they win because they deserve every bit of it and more. Yeah, they've fought the good fight for a number of years, even before it made its way to the Human Rights Commission. So it's been a long Absolutely. road for the Churchills. Absolutely. And still continues to be. Well, we'll see what becomes of it. I appreciate the time. There's also a newsletter to keep abreast of things that are happening at the Human Rights Commission, isn't there? Yes, I sent that to you. Yeah, you, you did. I, I saw it, and I very quickly replied, but I... I be completely honest, I haven't even read it in full as of yet, but I try to keep keep my eye on a bunch of different screens and the calls uh, as we proceed throughout the show. But I'll have a careful look at it now, Colleen. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much, Patty. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You too. You take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's try to get to the news on time. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Trina Appleby. She's actually a councillor down at the town of Torbay, but she's also on the board of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. We'll hear from Trina after this. So we're going to talk about the statutory officer review or office review. That's going to be for a variety of quasi-standalone uh, uh, agencies and boards and those types of statutory offices, whether it be the High Commissioner, or pardon me, the Commissioner of Legislative Standards and the like. We'll talk about that, and then we're talking to you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Take a moment to Trina Appleby, representing the Canadian, or pardon me, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Hi, Trina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, I wanted to share with your listeners that um, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is uh, meeting this week in Ottawa, and we are having our advocacy days where uh, municipal leaders from across the country come together and we um, lobby the federal government for resources for our municipalities. And we had a conversation in Strathcona in September uh, about some of the issues that are facing municipal leaders across the country. And it was really interesting to have a conversation about, you know, what were some of the struggles that municipal leaders were facing. And some of that conversation was around harassment and bullying and isolation. And so I asked our president of AFCM, uh, Tanine Riddick, to host a town hall. Uh, our committee, I chair the National Standing Committee to increase women's participation in municipal government across Canada. And I asked her to host an event, facilitate a conversation about these issues. And so yesterday in Ottawa, this discussion happened. There was an hour and a half of time dedicated for the full board to come together and have a conversation. And it was specifically set at this time to recognize the National Day of Remembrance and, you know, the Day of Action around violence against women. And I not only sit at the FCM table, but I also sit at the MNL table. And I feel it's really important to have a conversation at every opportunity that we get about the importance of participating in your community as a municipal councillor. And I want to make sure that everybody knows that there's a space that's there that you can come and participate and bring your best self forward and represent your community. And all too often, unfortunately, people decide, I don't think I want to do that because 
I don't want to deal with the harassment and the ugliness that sometimes comes with participating in your community. And I feel a lot of us, you know, we get involved because we have an issue that we feel passionately about or there's something in our community that we want to do. For me, my dad spent 30 years leading in my hometown of Bjorn when I grew up there. And I had the privilege of watching my dad do it. And I love the fact that my kids watch their mom do it now. But I know when I shared this yesterday on Facebook, there were people who reached out and said, you know, thanks for standing up. Thanks for having this conversation. And I want to make sure that although we had a great increase this past election, the Make Your Mark campaign was fabulous. And we had an increase, I believe, of 10 percent of women in the sector in Newfoundland Labrador. If you look at Canada as a whole, we are the 61th in a list of countries that don't meet parity with, you know, municipal government across our country. And it was, and it was said yesterday it's going to take 256 years to achieve parity in Canada. I'm not interested to wait 256 years. So I think it's important to have this conversation, to bring out in the public the conversation around what it can be when you put your name forward. The best thing I ever did, Patty, other than have my children, was to put my name on a ballot, represent people, stand up for them, and do the best I can for my community at, you know, at the community level, the provincial level, and the federal level. But I just want to make, to make sure that people hear there's a positive side to this. And if you are experiencing any form of harassment, you're not alone. There's support. The Department of Municipal Affairs have resources to talk to people. Reach out to other counselors in other communities. Talk to them. Make sure that if you're feeling isolated or you feel like you're on your own, you're not. And I'm a resource. Amy's a resource. Dietra's a resource at MNL, the provincial level. You know, Stephanie Hoey at FCM, she's a resource. There's lots of information and resources available to women who want to get in the sector, but also women who want to stay in the sector and are feeling pressure. So I just wanted to get on. I wanted to share the conversation. I wanted to thank FCM for creating space for this discussion. And I want to make sure that anyone who's feeling isolated in any part of this island in their community, in serving their community, in whatever that might, way that might be, that they know their support, that we're out here. And, and, and this is not just a Newfoundland issue or not just a your community issue. This is an issue that's happening right across the country. And the conversation yesterday was talking about a cultural shift in how we make sure that we have inclusive and diverse you know, uh, municipal representation in all our communities. And it's not just at one level of government, it's at all levels of government. And it could be quite vicious. I mean, I see it. I know social media is not necessarily reflective of the community at large, but when politicians feel the need to be engaged with their constituents, and one surefire way to be able to do that is on social media. And then the pushback, sometimes based on, you know, not much, just frustration as opposed to legitimate questions or concerns, I don't know if it's worth it for anybody. I know that we tried to help MNL last year, get more people to encourage more people to put themselves forward, but specifically for municipal councils, because so many unable to have a quorum, didn't have enough candidates to even fill all the seats around the council table. But, you know, if people want quality representation, and we all do, is we all have to understand that it's a difficult, sometimes thankless job, and coming unhinged all the time on every issue, no matter what, is probably not helping. I know people think that they're shining a bright light on what might be corruption or ineptitude or incompetence or oblivious uh, position that some counselors will take, but there's always one way to craft a message, and sometimes the -the over-the-top anger is not doing anything. You're not furthering your cause you're not getting any answers because who can really deal with someone who is on a, is impossible to deal with 
Well, you know, Patty, that, that was part of the discussion yesterday. And some people said, you know, I blocked people and I don't engage and I've stayed off social media because it's not a safe space for me. But, you know, I, I feel that people speak up and they have concerns and they share. And, and from my perspective as a municipal counselor, I feel that it's really important for people to speak up and share their concerns sure. and speak to us so we can hear them in a respectful way. And people are passionate about their issues because they care. But, you know, from my perspective, I've been in the space. I've had a troll. I remember when I had my first troll, I went, oh, this is wonderful. It feels like, you know, I've made the cover of the Herald. I've finally made it in politics. I've got a troll. No, it's not respectful. It's not okay. If you have an issue, please come to me. Call me. Speak to me. I want to hear from you. Nobody gets elected and then knows everything. The, the, the biggest skill you have as an elected official is the ability to listen and advocate for people and work for the cause. And sometimes it's just as frustrating for us as elected officials at whatever level you're working, when you're trying to move something forward, but for a whole lot of reasons people don't see, it's slower. But you stay committed and you work with people and you find solutions. But the, the online culture of hate and anonymity, I can't even say it this morning, but, but you know, this, this, this bullying and harassment culture that seems to be part of, hey, you put your name on a ballot, well, you're going to have to learn to live with that. No, that needs to change. We need to make sure that the best people in our community feel safe putting their names forward. Some of the things we talked about yesterday were their children being attacked. And I'm going to put a little shout out now to my daughter who turned 15 on Sunday. She's so excited about municipal politics and her friends paying attention to the fact that her mom is involved in the sector. And that's great because it gets young women thinking about the sector and, pay- and paying attention, and young people as a collective. And it's not just a woman's issue. It's a man's issue. It's however you identify issue. But I think, Patty, opening up the conversation, having a talk about the respect that's required for people, from people to people, elected or not, that cultural shift, how we engage before we hit send, before we respond emotionally, to stop thinking about what we're doing. I think as well, you know, the, the emotional impact that happens when people are harassed and attacked in the public, it's not just that individual that you're attacking at whatever level of government they're at. It's their impact on their families when they come home and they've got a short fuse or they're stressed out or whatever is going on there. So I think we need to really open up this discussion, have a broader discussion. I'm very glad that FCM created the space and allowed for a national discussion you know, about this issue. And I also want to share with municipal leaders, there are trainings that we offer at FCM. There is the bystander training that I did in November where we talk about, hey, you might not feel comfortable when you experience harassment and bullying, but these are some things that you can do that could help in a situation. Uh, There's a group called Glitch out of the UK. They share information for free about how to deal with online harassment and bullying. There's another group called HeartMob, and you can reach out to them, and they can swamp your social media with with bits of supports and information about how to deal with harassment and bullying. And I know that the Federation of Key Municipalities, our website is fcm.ca, and on that website you can find our resource library that is there for inclusive municipal participation so you can learn about how to set up your campaign, what do you need to know. But I just want to make sure that you said, you know, is it really worth it? And, And I'm going to say my experience, my five years of this, it is worth it. It's worth helping people. It's worth it when someone calls me and says, Trina, I don't know how to do this. I need your help. Can you help me find a way? 
And you know what, Patty? Some days it can be frustrating, and some days it can feel isolating, and some days it feels like you're experiencing things you don't want to. But when you have a network and you have support and you have resources, it makes it easier to move things forward. And I got involved to serve my community, but I also got involved to affect change. And I feel it's really important that we open this discussion, that people think about the impacts. And they might not, you know, in the moment of sending harmful messages or taking harmful actions, but I think it's important that we talk about slowing things down, you know, really thinking about what is the impact of my actions and being accountable for the messages we send, the actions we take, and making sure that our communities are safe, inclusive environments for everybody, not just in the community, but, you know, also at the municipal table or leadership roles. And and I heard on your your your, uh, your show today, you know, sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't get it wrong. But the best way we learn and make things right is for people in our communities to reach out to us and talk to us respectfully and make sure their voices are heard so we can make better and more informed decisions. So I want to thank you. I really want to thank you for this time. I know I've spoken a lot, and I tend to. But I just want to make sure that we're open this conversation and having this talk uh, here in Newfoundland as well. I'm happy that we are, and I appreciate your time, Trina. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Really appreciate it. Happy holidays to you and your listeners. Same to you, Trina. Thanks. Okay, you're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Trina Appleby, Councillor in Torbay, and of course sits on the Canadian Federation Municipalities Board as well. So it's the VOCM. I'm going to see, make sure I get this right because I'll shag this up every now and then. It's VOCM's 12 Good Deeds of Christmas Contest. The day one winners, Sheila Reed and Ann Tomlin, uh, about their commitment to the Little Red Pantry up in Shea Heights. Joining us on line number two is Ed. Good morning, Ed. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Right off the bat, congratulations, and thank you very much to you and Sheila. Uh, thank you very much sir, for your uh, for your having us on blowing here. Uh, we'd like to th- thank uh, Linda Hart and uh, St. John Bosco School for, day for nominating us. It was totally unsurprised. It was a total surprise, and... We'd like to thank the school and that for all their support and the community of Shea Heights as a whole for all their support and what uh, we're doing. We're, we're just distributing it. They're the ones that are supporting it and bringing everything to us and giving it to us, and we're just passing it out. And there's uh, loads of businesses up here and everything that support it wholeheartedly, and the people are just excellent. The support we have is unbelievable. Well, right off the bat, you know, good on you and Sheila, but tell us about what actually you're doing with the Little Pantry. Our uh, Little Pantry is, is just uh, there on the, the side road. We just put food supplies in that, and if anyone needs it, just come and take what you need. And, you know, just leave what you can. If you can leave something, if you can't, just take whatever you want and go on with the sort of thing. And we try to help out, like, you know, lunches with school and any anything like when the school doesn't have their lunch programs and so on and so forth and that we try to help out there a little bit and, you know but this all comes from the community and it's just redistributed to the locations as needed and Christmas stockings and different things like that for different members of the community and so on right well, good on you. So, I mean, if someone can leave something, that's helpful. But how do you go about making sure that the pantry is full? Because many people would be unable to leave something behind. And I know you want to keep it stocked. Oh, well, the community has great support. Like, they, we had to send the class parade there the other day. And 
uh, executive bosses donated the boss stove. They could collect the food through the Santa Claus parade. The school has food drives over there when, and the community board, the Shayhouse community board order, they have uh, food drives and so on, and they delivered all us, and we just distributed that way. Eh? Ah, terrific. So, I mean, we're happy to be able to recognize good people doing good things that is really helping the community, and that's a great example up on Shea Heights, which is a very tight-knit community, so no wonder you're getting that kind of support. Oh, yeah, yeah. Most definitely. The support up here is un- unbelievable, and we like to thank Piper Stoke for their, uh, after we were nominated, and, uh, and then just soon as that was an announcement was on the Sunday radio, I uh, came to store Pop Owl. He had matched that donation, that $100 gift with one of his own. Oh, excellent. Good news. So so that was, uh, that was none, of, none of our people. And other people are like Mary Lou's out there. There's two stores and that, Mary Lou's. And, uh, I don't pray to be saying people because I don't want to miss anybody. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I understand that one too, uh, Ed. Yeah, and uh, they're like... Uh, Empire Pizza donated some pizzas that we're going to be giving out in the, over the holidays and so on, so forth, you know. And they're all, all community-minded people, and Fagan's Farms, they're from CBS. They give us a deal on our vegetables for the, some hampers that we're doing up. And, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's, uh, we try to shop locally and keep it in the communities, right? Like you would. Ed, I really appreciate the time this morning, and thank you for what you're doing to you and Sheila and everyone else who's helping to support the Little Red Pantry up on the brow. Thanks for this. All right. Thanks, Daddy. All the best, Ed. All right. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we have mentioned that the province has indeed appointed retired Supreme Court Justice Robert Fowler to look at the statutory offices. We'll find out what those offices are, what the purpose of the review, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Uh, As we mentioned, retired Supreme Court Justice Robert Fowler is going to conduct a review of the statutory offices. They include the Commissioner for Legislative Standards, Office of the Chief Electoral Officer, Office of the Child and Youth Advocate, Office of the Citizen's Representative, Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner, and the Seniors Advocate. Joining us online number one to discuss is independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Patty, uh, this is probably not the most exciting topic for the uh, average listener out there, and I understand that because people are concerned about, you know, uh, their day-to-day lives, trying to survive, uh, cost of living issues, certainly health care issues, family doctors, and so on. And, and so I know if I were to call in and talk about those things, those are things that some people may perk up about because it's things that are impacting them directly. This This one here... Uh, in people's minds, perhaps, uh, it, uh, they might say, well, what has this got to do with me? But the reality of it is that this has a lot to do with us all, <clears throat> because we're talking about uh, what, what the review we're talking about here, and you name them, are all of these statutory offices. And these statutory offices are independent. Uh, certainly, they're supposed to be totally independent from government. They do not report to the government they are appointed by and they report directly to the House of Assembly. And there is a big difference between reporting to the House of Assembly versus appointing to the government. It's supposed to make sure they're arm's length and that government cannot interfere in any activities that may be being investigated. And when we talk about uh, activities being investigated, 
You can think about, for example, the work the Auditor General has done and the recent uh, scathing reports around <coughs> Nelcor and how they were handling people's money. We can think back to the school board uh, issue and uh, and all of the you know the, the questionable spins uh, that, that that were made within the school board. Uh, you can think about the uh, the the, uh, the report at Elections Newfoundland Labrador about you know uh, potentially toxic workplaces existing. Those certainly were the allegations that were being made. And all of these workplaces, of course, are government, which means we're talking. Uh, publicly owned and publicly funded institutions that are supposed to be doing uh, the good work of the people. So all of those types of issues, whether and things around conflicts of interest and so on, and openness and transparency. So when people hear about, are concerned about issues around conflicts, around openness and transparency, around backdoor deals being done and all this kind of stuff, all of these types of matters would fall to statutory officers to investigate uh, independently and to shine a light on what is going on and to make recommendations to get things cleaned up. So, you know, again, while the average person might say, what's this all about and this doesn't really apply to me, it absolutely applies to us all and to the entire system for it to operate properly and uh, openly, transparently and ethically. So I guess that's the the first point I kind of wanted to make around it. The other point, though, Patty, I want to make, uh, and and I do support the review, but one of the concerns I have, and I'm not sure how this review is going to go and if it'll be open to the public to make commentary or to members or whatever, I certainly intend on participating, uh, if I can, in the process uh, with Judge Fowler. (laughs) Certainly, one of the things I have a concern with is the whole idea of the independence around these uh, offices. Because, as I said, these officers are supposed to be totally independent of government. But I have noted, certainly in the last couple of years, of instances and concerns that I have where even though these officers are supposed to be totally independent from government, we see government and cabinet ministers sort of inserting themselves into the process where I'm not so sure it's appropriate and they should be doing so. Even this review itself, in theory, if Minister Hogan, as an example, has a concern uh, that, you know, okay, well, maybe some of these offices could be combined or changed or whatever because there's concerns that he has. Theoretically, if this is totally independent of government and the executive branch of government as it's supposed to be, then he should be writing a letter to the Management Commission saying, these are concerns I have. I'd like for the Management Commission to consider doing a review. And then the Management Commission could consider whether they feel that's necessary or it's not necessary and 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 they would make that recommendation to the house of assembly but that's not what simply the minister deciding on his own that this is something that he wants to see done uh we look at we look at situations like uh with the whistleblower uh report and how that was handled by the speaker well if you look at the legislation it listed a number of areas and it listed what the speaker could do that with that report Nowhere on that list did it say give it to the Premier, but yet the Premier said that he was given the report and he handed it over to the Management Commission. The Premier is not even supposed to be involved in that. It's supposed, it should be going directly to the Management Commission, not to the Premier's office. Then the Premier said he was going to get the port report scrubbed by the, uh, by the, um, um, the uh, Privacy Commissioner. And, of course, the Privacy Commissioner rightly pointed out to the Premier, I don't work for you. 
I am not a government employee. Uh, I am an independent officer of the House, so I don't scrub your reports for you. So we've seen these types of things. Uh, and, and, of course, even the reports that have been done, the uh, whistleblower report, I'm a member of the House Assembly. We have a whistleblower report concerning an officer of the House who supposedly reports to me. I, I would be someone who had, would have to vote to, to, uh, to, uh, to have him appointed, as an example. But yet I have not seen the report. And I did see the public report that uh, Judge Green did, but a lot of that was redacted. So I'm not even really sure what the citizen's rep um, uh, defense or, or what, you know, what his points of view were as it related to um, the complaint against him by the chief electoral officer, because that was redacted. But yet he's an officer of the House who was also supposed to be reporting to me and the other 39 members of the House. So there's, there seems to be uh, this overreach, in my view, by government, and perhaps it's not clarified the way it should be in legislation, but we need to have it. It has to be totally independent. Government cannot in, insert itself into investigations by any independent officers. They cannot be taking reports and, and redacting reports and scrubbing reports or doing anything else. Um, it should be going to the House of Assembly, not to the government. That way, it's kept independent. That way, government cannot interfere, particularly if they are the ones who are being scrutinized. 100%. There's a process, and there's a process for a reason. And hopefully, everybody abides by it. Not only the officials in these statutory offices, but even, well, as importantly, all the members of the House of Assembly, all 40, regardless of their rank. I appreciate this, Paul. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a news break. When we come back, Lori wants to tell us about what happened out of the Carbonier General Hospital. Diane is a home care worker. She has some thoughts about the cost of living. And Gerald Guy, he drives a school bus. He's going to tell us what he's seen on the road, day in and day out. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Gerald, you're on the air. Hi, Gerald. Well, good morning, Patty. Morning. Gerald Guy, Arnold School. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Yeah, I've been on before. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, just quickly, I know you got other callers waiting there on the line. I'll try and make it quick. No uh, worries. Uh, this morning, uh, as I headed out on my track to pick up students, because I'm at a Tricentia Academy here in Arnold's Cove, I was bound for come my chance. I didn't come up on an accident right at the scene, but the accident had been taken care of. It was between Bull Arm Intersection, west of Arnold's Cove. And the an, and reason why I... I being reminded of a terrible accident at that scene at a day when the refinery first had its sod turned by Mr. The Honorable Joseph R. Smallwood. That day, there was a terrible accident at that scene, and I came upon that one today, which had been cleared away. But it brought memories back because I was one of the first among three or four to arrive at that scene back in the early 70s when there was families involved and a loss of five lives at that scene. That accident today, uh, I'm sure, took place with speed involved, hydroplaning. Just east of the Hibernia intersection, there's a little dip in the road. I'm real familiar with it because I go by there three and four times every day. And there's water pools there. I kind of think that that accident happened maybe with a high rate of speed and hydroplaning and the way it go. To see where that car ended up to, 
across the TCH, which would have been in my path in driving a school bus or anything, a car, my truck, whatever, and other mo- traveling motorists, to go that far off the highway, up over an embankment into trees. It's just frightening and it scared me today, bringing back memories of that scene back then. Patty, this is just a reminder to the traveling motorists. I, among many other drivers, are driving school buses with our future generation on board. Myself, uh, just say, for example, if I have 30 students on board, I have, including myself, several other families, which could be anywhere from 20 to, to 25, 30 families on board that bus. Can you imagine if I had been in the path of that oncoming car when it came across the highway, what we would be talking about today? So my message is clear out there. Please, traveling motorists, slow down. Slow down, no matter even if it's dry. Our speeds in the area, maybe all across the great province of Newfoundland and Labrador, is too high. It's way too high. Our feet are heavy on the paddle. Please remember, drive slow and let's try and stay alive. Even in the town of Arnold's Cove, the speed limit through the town is 30 kilometers. If I come out there in the school bus or even in my own truck or car, and I'm doing 50 to 60, it appears to be not that bad. But listen, if I'm in the school bus coming out there and I'm doing 60, I'm 30 kilometers. I'm double the speed limit. I'm doing wrong. So if I'm coming out there, say, at 35, 40, I'm still over the speed limit. And I have behind me three, four, five. I've had up to the highest 10 to 12 cars and trucks behind me, impatient drivers wanting to go where? Arnold's Cove is just a short town. Why are Just wait. Is our future generation aboard this bus? So I throw it out there as a reminder. Please, folks, obey the signals from those school buses. When the lights are flashing, if they're orange, yellow, amber, please slow down. Stop when the stop signs go out. Do not overtake a school bus, please. It's very, very wrong to do so. And we will, we will know and take care of business that we got to do. It's a part of driving a school bus. Patty, please get it out there when you, and ever you can over. Remind traveling motors to be aware of our future generation that's out on this highway. And by the way, I have to leave right now because the students at Troy Center Academy are being discharged at 12 noon today due to parent and teachers meeting. So I have to go, Patty, college short. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please remember, go light on the paddle. Drive safely. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. Thanks, Gerald. I appreciate the time. Good message. Have a, okay, bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, even just in and around here, there has been a ton of accidents in the last couple of mornings. So always a timely message. Let's go to line five. Laura, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good, actually. Good. Um, I guess I have a bit of a, a good story. I uh, took a tumble yesterday down my steps. It was just a few steps. And uh, unfortunately, I was wearing hoop earrings. So one of the earrings got caught and ripped my earlobe in half. Oh, my God. So, yeah, yeah, I kind of went into panic mode. Like, one side was blown east and one side was blown west, literally. Oh, my God. So I, after I initially, you know, the shock, I was like, now, now what do I do? Do I 
do I go to Carbonier? Because I keep hearing all these horror stories. So it took me 40 minutes. I was like, if I don't go get this stitched up, eventually, you know, I'm going to look like a dog in a windstorm with my earlobe flying back behind me. So I said, I made a decision. I went to Carbonier. Um, and I really got to say the the staff were amazing. I, from the lady that registered me to the triage nurse, um, but I really got to give a shout out to the doctor. Um, it was a lady from Iraq, actually. And she was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And she told me all about her family. She was, I must have been, I don't know, 40 minutes getting stitched up because I had other cousins that I didn't even know about. And I, I never got to see her before I left. And I really just wanted to thank her because she was so amazing. And I just, I wish we had more doctors like her. So if anybody out there is listening and know the doctor that I'm referring to, um, she was in Carbonair last night in Emerge. She will be going to Placentia to work. And I think anybody that, uh, any patient that gets her will be very lucky. And I really, really hope that someone can get this message to her that I just really thank her for, um, you know, taking such good care of me and put me at such ease. And she was amazing. And we, I, we need more doctors like her. Well, when you're stressed out and worried and injured, it really does take that type of approach from whatever clinician, yeah. whatever healthcare professional. And I'm glad you got that type of treatment. And it sounds like uh, you're, you're going to be okay. So what happens there? You just got stitched up and they hope for the best? Or is there any other plastic surgery coming or what's going on? Um, I, I don't know. I guess this is, they told me I'll never be able to wear earrings again, which is heartbreaking. Oh, man. <laughs> but I suppose there's worse things that could happen, so... You know, it's it's stitched up. I don't know what it's going to look like when it's done, when it, it's healed and the stitches come out. I don't really know where I go from here. But, you know, I just wanted to, to thank the staff at Carbonier. And I was there in and out done in about two and a half hours. Like everything was just running real smooth. And the really scary part, though, was how many young kids I saw coming in oh, that yeah. were really sick. Like, Wow. Yeah, I'm it hearing was, and seeing so way too much of that. Yeah, it was crazy. And then people, I seen one man come in and going off his head, and I just don't understand that behavior in the, in the merge department. Like, anyway, it was, it, to me, like the horror stories that I've heard about Cardinier and Emerge, like yesterday, none of that happened. Like, people were in and out quickly. I mean, I was done, and I was being stitched out for you know, a good while. I had about 20 stitches. My ear took the longest. But, yeah, like, I had a great experience, and, and I really want to thank that doctor. I know I can't say her name, but hopefully someone out there will know who she is, and that I just say, really want to thank her. No, if you want to thank that doctor personally, go ahead. Say her name. <laughs> we actually had a joke, because I was trying to say her name. It's her first name. So she was Dr. Nehead. Okay. And she's originally from Iraq, and she's been here now for a few years. And so she told me about the process of trying to practice medicine here, and she's almost done. And it's just a lot of, I was going to say a real bad word then, but it's a lot of red tape. That there is, and that's something we've been talking about a lot on this show, yeah. accreditation, whether it be for doctors from other provinces or other countries. Yeah. We've got to get it right because... The shortage is obvious and is very real. Lori, I'm glad you had a positive yeah. experience after a scare, yeah. and I wish you a full, speedy recovery, whatever that looks like. Thank you very much, Patty. Take good care of yourself. Okay, you bye. too. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. 
Okay, bye-bye. Uh, final break of the morning. Don't go away when we come back. Cost of living. And there's a caller who wants to talk about the fact that phone med, he says, is disrespectful to family doctors. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Diane. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Thank you. Uh, I just want to touch on the cost of living and the raise of pay for some employees. I am a home care worker. It's called a self-managed program where our time cards are submitted to a bookkeeping provider and submitted to Eastern Health for payout. And we have not had a raise in pay since I think it was 2014, 2015. It's a long while to go. Certainly the consumer price index and the cost of everything you touch and see and feel has gone way up. Yep. And, you know, the government talks about how they've provided income or increases to uh, seniors, to people on assistance, and that's all fine and well. I'm not disagreeing with any of that, but some of us are getting left through the cracks. I mean, a minimum wage has gone up a few times since we've got our increase. Yeah, just went up 50 cents in October and going to hit 15 bucks by fall next year, I think. Yep, and here we are. I'm, like at 2013, 2014, when I got my last pay, I went up to 15.55, and that's where I've been ever since. So minimum wage now is I'm only going to get 15, uh, 50 cents more than minimum wage. Yeah, and for the type of job you're doing, and I mean not to disparage anyone doing a minimum wage job for what they call an entry-level job, but home care, boy, oh boy, you know, when we talk about planning for the future and aging in place and how many hours home care people are getting and what we're paying and how we're training our home care workers, we've got to be sure that we're on track here because some of the key recommendations regarding seniors and being able to stay in their own home is a clear recommendation in the health accord, but that's also going to require some significant home care support. So who's going to want to do it if they're so undervalued and underpaid and their job is so important? I agree, and I'm not disagreeing with anyone getting minimum wage because I've worked that, you know, area myself over the years. So uh, kudos for them for getting their raise and pay. But you know, it's very frustrating for the, some of us that are still getting no increases when everything else is going up. And like I said, it's been it's been almost ten years. It's a long way, to, a long time to go without a raise. Yeah, I mean, of course, when you look at some of these difficult jobs, whether it be early childhood educators and the rate of pay they get, home care workers, the rate of pay they get, then these are some uh, pretty important areas when we're talking about our most vulnerable, our children and our seniors. Good gracious. Obviously, we've got to put the appropriate value to the work they do. I agree. Yeah. Well, is there a scheduled raise coming beyond what we're talking about with minimum wage? No, there's mm. been no touch on it. Now, I did call uh, Helen uh, Conway-Ottenheimer and mention it to her. She's, they said they were going to bring it forward. I've never heard anything on it, but I mean, I, I don't know who to contact or what to do because, you know, everything is going up and, you know, they say in the new year, the cost of living, the vegetables, produce, whatever, is all going to increase and my wages are staying the same. Yeah, I'll follow up with uh, uh, Ms. Conway-Ottenheimer's office because there's a couple of things that she's been in the news about lately. So I'll add this to the list when we see if she has time for us tomorrow or early next week. Thank you so very much. Appreciate your time, Diane. You have a good day and Merry Christmas. Same to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Daryl Kendall, you're on the air. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Uh, I'm a retired pharmacist. I was a pharmacist for 35 years, and uh, I, I butted heads for years with Central Health and the Department of, Department of Health, and 
you know, you get off the phone and you try to figure out the thought process. So hearing in the news this week about phone med and virtual medicine, and I'm trying to figure out the thought process of why they did this with a two-tier pay, pay structure. Here we are in the atmosphere of trying to recruit doctors. And when recruiting, it's not only the money, it, it's, you know, to respect it or, you know, how they're treated. And so they hear, okay, if I do virtual medicine or, you know, do a virtual appointment, I get 42 bucks and I'm capped. But the government's hired a private company paying 82. Like, how does that instill confidence in when you're trying to recruit doctors into the province and to retain the doctors that you have? Like, I'd like for someone in Department of Health to phone in and explain how they thought this was a good idea. Because 811, I think, uh, evolved from COVID, and it was a good service when it first started. You know, you, like you had questions, protocols changed all the time. This is morphed into a virtual clinic on a different pay structure than the government office, offers your physicians right now. Where's the logic in that? I don't know. It makes no sense to me. So just so people have the numbers. So $31 million between 2022 and 2027. Expected volume of calls, 72000 Uh Money is 82 per call, $82 per call. You're absolutely right. But it rises all the way to 92 in the final yeah. year of this contract. So after 72000 there's a bit of a cut rate. Yeah, but uh, yeah, right inside a physician's office, the cap is forty per day for virtual care, and they can charge forty-two dollars MCP or bill forty-two dollars MCP in person, thirty-seven dollars. Here's where it gets even more convoluted for me, Daryl, is if you call eight one one, and they say you have to see a doctor within twenty-four hours, or they refer you to a doctor or the emergency room. So then, consequently, we paid eight one one eighty-two dollars. Then we maybe yeah. paid a family doctor another thirty-seven. So we're double billing for point. the same thing. That was my next point. Oh. Back in October, I mean, I've been lucky enough, I've been fairly healthy over the years. Last October, I had to contact uh, Medicuro, actually, and uh, with pain. And five hours later, I was in the hospital, admit it, because he was able to uh, run the tests that he wants and make arrangements for it for me to get these things done. And I ended up in the hospital. But, you know, you call 811, they say, we, we, we did, I think, about two years, and say, well, you're going to have to see a doctor. Well, like, no shit. <laughs> you know, but like to me, you know, it's not only that aspect of it. Like, are you really showing any respect for physicians when you do that? Well, I think if you have to ask the doctors or the ones that have been chiming in on my social media threads, the answer is clearly no. Well, obviously. I, so this is why, like, you know, like I say, I, I, I bang my head against the desk over the years because I just cannot follow the logic. And but, but I got an idea. I got two ideas actually. Number one is. The people that are advising the ministers have not been on the floor of a hospital and had direct interaction with patients in years, if, if ever. They have no idea what's involved. And the second thing, they just want to maintain the illusion of relevancy. You know, they come out with these protocols and things that make absolute no sense in a practice environment. I mean, I know I, I used to be so frustrated at work trying to follow along with, with the interference. And, I mean, here they are now trying to recruit doctors into the province and trying to keep what they got. And setting up a two-tier pay structure. But someone's got rocks for brains. Well, inevitably, I think some of the arguments you're going to hear is 811 was born out of necessity. And I understand yeah, I that. But that does not mean that we don't have the opportunity for the foresight to, uh, required to say, okay, wait till the numbers for the contractual arrangement get out there, that we're paying double to a company, a private sector company, to uh, provide this service, and then we talk about the need to recruit retain more doctors. They feel the salt in the wound on this one, and I understand completely why. 
Oh, absolutely. And so I hope someone comes on to your show tomorrow, probably a bit late today, and just explain the thought process there. So I don't get it. We're happy to try. All right, thank you. Thanks, Daryl. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Very quickly, before we run out of time, let's go say good morning to the president of the Elks Lodge 245. That's Jocelyn Green. Jocelyn, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, I just, I know we're out of time, so I just want to remind people that our last night of our raffle that uh, has been very successful all week, we're supporting uh, five charities, Boys and Girls Club, Single Parents Association, uh, Connections for Seniors, uh, Royal Peripheral Fund, and Community Food Sharing. So that's tonight, starting at 6. And on Sunday, we have a really exciting Christmas magic show uh, with Gary Summers, well-known as a great magician. Santa's going to appear magically. It's going to be wonderful for kids. Tickets still available. And you can call the lodge, 722-0095, or email us at um, bookings. Jeez, um, you're now. I'm saying I can't get the bookings. Uh, email us at bookings.elksclub245 at gmail.com. And uh, it's going to be a great show. And, again, we're supporting giving people are donating tickets for the Boys and Girls Club and Single Parents Association. So you can either buy tickets or donate, and we'll make sure other families get to come. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the raffle. Thanks a lot, Patty. Have well, a good day. Same to you, Jocelyn. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, Jocelyn Green is the president of Elk Slash 245. We're out of time. But we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.